0: everybody. Good day, and thank you for coming by another Merged Worlds Dungeons & Dragons story stream, hosted today by me and little Miss Patches, who happened to decide to climb up on my belly all of a sudden. (laughs) Me and Miss Patches are going to tell you a tale of dragons and dungeons and other fantastic beasts and wonders. Uh, Hopefully, you will enjoy our tale. Hey, Jim, good day, sir. Glad to see you and Miss Smashley were able to make it by. I am very excited for tonight's story because this chapter of the story we've been telling, uh, the quest to save Michael, has always been one of the favorite storylines that I have written um, throughout all of my years as a DM. And the Coromon part was a lot of fun to play through. Um, But now we're stepping into the part that, story-wise, I'd had in the back of my head for a very long time and uh, was very excited to finally have the opportunity to bring it into actual... into life, if you will, in the Merge worlds. So I'm excited that we will get to at least start on that section. Um, I don't know if... I don't think we'll get finished it today, but uh, we should get to at least enter into... The important part so I'm pretty excited about that um, I will begin by saying thank you all for coming by and giving me the opportunity to tell my story it is always the favorite thing that I get to do um, for those of you who may only be fans of Merge Worlds and maybe don't watch the rest of my stuff I did want to let you know that uh, starting in a couple of weeks my schedule will be starting uh, to change for work and I will get, have more opportunity Uh, to stream and create content for the channel. Um, Stepping back a bit from my full-time job to put more time and effort into this channel and the content that I make. Um, As such, there will be a little bit of change to some of the programming. Uh, For those of you who are Merged Worlds fans, uh, Merged Worlds, starting uh, that week, will be moving to Thursday nights at 8 p.m. instead of Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Um, with the new schedule I will be working Sunday nights and it was unfortunately one day that they would not give me off so uh, to make the rest of this work Merge Worlds will be moving to same as before uh, three times a month or three weeks in a row and then the member stream but those will now happen on Thursdays. Um, That should tentatively start the week of March the 3rd Um, so that Sunday, I believe, would have been the member stream, so that will bump up, so it'll actually be a week or two before we hit into the, the new uh, Merge World stuff, but I will have a calendar up with more information at the beginning of March. I'm just waiting for the final word from my employers letting me know that that is, in fact, the week that it's going into play. So, All right. So, well, as, as normal, we'll start with just a little bit of recap from where we left off. In uh, our last episode... Our heroes once again descended down into the um, deep depths of the dwarven kingdom of Corman, this time on a quest to help their dwarven friend Cole uh, potentially open up and take back uh, the cavern or the, his ancestral home of his clan, the Ventoy, which had been sealed for 450 years because of a plague that was inside and they had sealed themselves in to keep it from claiming the lives of the rest of Corman. Um, they managed to go inside, went through some adventures and fun and were able to successfully take back that land. While they were there, uh, their, their reward offered to them by the Ventois, that they could go into the massive treasure room of that clan and they could take out anything they wanted that they could carry that was their reward. While they were excuse me while they're in there, Artemis, found a wooden door. It looked very out of place and she was inspelled by it and walked through it, much to her friend's uh, uh, horror. When they reopened the door she had walked through, there was nothing there but stone. She was in a room with a mysterious man at a table. Said he'd been waiting for her a very long time. There were three doors into this room. The one she walked in and two others. On that table were three chests. One was open and empty. She was told by this man, who did not give a name, that she was to choose one of the other two chests and then exit through the door that she came in. When she asked about the other chest and the other doors, he said, those are not for you. She opened a door, and inside she found what looked like a decent quality, but nothing phenomenal sword, with the etching in a language she could not read, but still was understood was the word destiny, and the sword would not come from the sheath. She was told that it was her job as the seeker who found the sword to take it to the protector who would keep it until the bearer needed it. She then left and was reunited with her friends. Returning to the surface, they hung out for a while until the dwarves were successfully able to perfectly reforge the magical staff Menandra in its physical form so that they could then take that back to hopefully save the life of one of our characters, Dandy's husband. Returning then by ship back to the city of paxowal where Michael's body was, uh, was and was, uh, the mage's, primarily a mage named Lemia, was helping to try to cure it. Was unfortunately told that while the staff was there, she had no way to re inspell it. That the original spell on the staff was done by clerics. It was a clerical magic, unlike nothing she's ever found. And what she could tell only the original caster could reproduce it. And with the age of the magical uh, spear staff, uh, that person would no likely be alive. Tobias, their friend mage, said that there was a way. They were to enter into the sands, a outside-of-time plane of existence where there exists books that tell every story, tale, and history that has ever happened. Thank you very much, Cheddar Chaz, for the donation. I appreciate that. Thank you very much, sir. <laughs> but these books will allow you to relive history. And while you cannot remove anything physical that you did not take in there with you, if they could take their spear into the correct book and have it recast on their spear instead of the one in the book, they would very likely be able to recreate the spell and save Michael. Um, didn't know his work. was, what they're going to try. So the mages looked into this, and they said, only one person we know has an, uh, the ability to get into the sands, and that is uh, a mage king named King Darkmoor, the King of Darkmoor, uh, who, his family has a large collection of very powerful magic artifacts that the paxwall mages had been trying to get him to join up as part of their affiliation because of his knowledge and access to a horrendous amount of magic. But he has been hesitant to do so. Uh, some of you may remember that both Dandy and Artemis have some history with this king and did not leave on the best of terms. But uh, the mages reached out to him and he said that while he would not promise to grant their request, he would at least Allow them to come and make a request in person. So we finished off with Tobias uh, and our four heroes, and five, sorry, five heroes, because Ulrich is there as well, um, going through a portal to the Kingdom of Darkmoor, where the mage is like, We wish you luck, but please, please don't piss off this mage. We really want him to join up into our group. So that's kind of where we left off. Um, you have to allow me, I'm eating a little bit of chocolate while we do this. I haven't eaten a lot today. I was working so I sat down for the last hour and a half and kept reading read through this whole next section of the story so I'm going to get get a handle and we are ready to go so we are now going to jump in and proceed with the story so our characters are six friends Darsh Dandy, Mercy Artemis Ulrich and Tobias walk through the portal created by Craven, the head mage of the Mage Tower Paxwell, and find themselves on a road, a very short distance from an incredibly good-sized city, not massive like Paxwell, uh, but a very good-sized city. In the year and a half since Dandy and Artemis had been here, they could tell that it had drastically increased in size. Uh, Darkmoor being a good king, wizard of the, of, of the light, if you will. And much like Tobias, um, specializing in magical items and artifacts, um, he was a, a safe spot, if you will. And so there's protected land, people definitely, and his kingdom is building up quickly. Um, it is a great distance from any of their regular lands that they travel. Um, so to get back home could take weeks upon weeks. So, let me see here. They begin to walk into the city. Uh, People looking, nodding, of course. Artemis being a cleric. Everybody always nods in respect to Artemis. Tobias being a mage. This is a city ruled by mages. Good mages. So seeing another mage walking through, they're going to show respect to mages as well. Why would they not? Uh, Of course, Dandy and Darsh get some odd looks as normal. But most people assume, okay... Darsh is clearly there to protect the cleric and the mage. And Dandy is there because they are very, very generous. (laughs) Something of that nature. Uh, I don't know why I got mixed up and thought they were going to the evil Pandora worshipy place. Oh, no, 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 not there. Not the kingdom of Ormon. No, this is the kingdom of Darkmoon where they basically mugged the head cleric of light named Damon to steal the, uh, the light stone thing they protect in order to defeat Draven's evil vampire brother. Boy, that sounds like a... fanfic. In <laughs> I don't want to say it out loud, but yes. Um, so yes, they are here. Um, I, Darkmoor itself... was an adventure... that... Um, another group and I played... on Merged Worlds. It was a very short-lived group. It didn't last long. Um, and... Damon, the cleric... And someone else we about to meet where the two characters played and then I played the king, the wizard, because again, I was the NPC. They are trying to help me take back my kingdom from the dark forces that had done it. And even at that time, I knew the dark force they were dealing with was Draven's brother, even though the groups knew each other, didn't know that the stories were connected in any way. So I have a lot of time and history invested into Darkmoor Castle. Um, other than Serenity and Paxwell, probably the most amount of detail I have for a specific location on merged worlds. Corman being uh, pretty good, as well as Crone the Dwarven Kingdom. So I got a lot of those, but uh, this one was, was before I even wrote the Crone session. So it was a nice callback. I have a binder over there dedicated to the city of Dark very cool. Um, so as they reach the... They're heading... They reach... Uh, going towards the main gates of the city. This is the outer city... There's a big wall around this uh, the, the castle itself, or which is more of a tower, really. He's a mage, after all, from a family of mages. They are met at the gate by someone who is waiting for them. And that is the general of the military, the army, if you will, of Darkmoor, the city of Darkmoor, Kingdom of Darkmoor. Uh, he was the other character played, but at this point now, he is a general. He's overwhelmingly well-respected. Um, and a tough, grizzled battle veteran. Uh, Tinker Tork the gnome, general and leader of all of Darkmoon's military, greets them. His uh, haircut in a very military buzz-like style, and his very small little bit of a goatee going on. Uh, he's, at this point, you know, not too old. He's probably in his 30s, thir- the equivalent of 30s for gnomes. They live longer, but he looks like he'd be in his 30s. Um, and he is one of the two best friends of Darkmoor himself, uh, along with Damon, who's the head of the Temple Cleric of Light. Tinker Tork greets them warmly, um, very professional, uh, and, and he, he never got to meet Artemis or Dandy in the last uh, trip they came here. Tinker Tork was not in t- there at that time. Uh, he's heard tales, I'm sure. And, uh, but he's still just as nice and professional to them as he is to everyone else. And then you know, ask him to follow him. In through the gates proper towards the main keep or tower of Darkmoor. Darkmoor Castle is a massive tower, taller than the mage tower in Paxabal. It is made of a white stone that seems to sparkle like sand in the sunlight. Tinkertork leads the group through... Throughout the uh, you know, walkways and leading up to the tower, and then when you get to the tower, they go through the grand entrance of big double doors that are left open throughout the day when you know, it's nice weather. Uh, finally, inside, you enter into a large central area of the tower, which at its center has a small park with a fountain and benches. Two elegant winding staircases circle each other going from the ground floor up, up, high above you. Uh, Going up into the roof far above you. People moving about glance their way, but try not to stare. Tinker Torg leads the characters into a small side chamber, and inside is a large table where they are asked to be seated. Artemis and Dandy can't help but recognize that this is the room that they first, the first trip, they met King Darkmoor when they came through here the last time. Uh, geez there's a lot of stuff that no one else knows oh there's so much stuff that no one else knows <laughs> one day I'll tell the story of Darkmoon it's actually pretty important let me interrupt myself like everyone else who writes I've found myself falling into a trap that I've always tried to avoid because um, it's a pet peeve of mine when I watch movies or read books or watch TV shows, but I found that when writing, I did the exact same thing. I call that the Star Wars conundrum. It's a galaxy far, far away. Thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of worlds. Millions of different life forms. People traveling all over the place across this massive galaxy. And it's the same six people that do everything every time. Why does it have to be that when Yoda goes in the prequel that he runs into Chewbacca of all people? You know what I mean? Why is it always the kids of the kids of the kids? I have found myself in the own trap here. But one thing that I tried to do in the story that while different groups all affect the world they may all affect the story, they don't have to necessarily interact. So the story of Darkmoor and how they took back the Keep um, after the merge had a major effect on the world and rippled into some things that will affect that affected Serenity and their quest to defeat Firemoon and all that kind of stuff. Even though those characters have met, they have no idea what the effect the other story had on their story. I do. I'm the only one that does. Maybe one day I'll share it with you. But I know that this action here caused this reaction in another story. But to them, that's just part of their story. To them, that's just part of their story. But to me, it's all part of the greater encompassing story. I don't feel that they have to interact and know about each other all the time. I don't want want it to try to separate it as much as possible, even though we run into familiar groups of people. Because again, I do accept the fact that if there are... People who are unusually more powerful than others, you're probably going to run into them more often than you do the regular common person. Uh, But I do try to avoid the Star Wars conundrum as much as possible and strive to introduce new characters and new things uh, that come from different areas and such uh, that aren't always linked. Sometimes I link them, sometimes I don't. Uh, But man, is it great for the story. Okay. A little aside there. Um. Where was I? Yes. They sit there for a short while. While, um, Tinker Tark is there. Just chatting absently about them. Asking some questions. He never met any of them. Um. And they're probably in there about 10 or 15 minutes before. King Thomas Darkmore. And his very best friend. Damon, Cleric of Light. I have... Uh, I have figures for them. I should show that. Funk. King. Thomas Darkmore. And Damon, his best friend, Cleric of Light. I do not have one for Tinker Tork. I will correct that. I did not realize that till today. But I never made a Tinker Tork one. Um, but yes, that is... Uh, that's them. And like I said, they're about the same age. Damon's, I think, a year and a half, two years older than them. But uh, they've been best friends since they were kids. Uh, Tinker Tork they met... ...throughout their adventures... uh, ...and became a close friend... ...and ally. So... ...King Thomas comes into the room... ...again he... ...very friendly but very businesslike, ...very proper. Um, He... ...advises them... ...were they PCs at some point? Um, Damon was and Tinker Torque was... Uh, ...the King was... ...a NPC that I ran... They were helping me take back my castle. Um, King Thomas says that he has, based on the request, agreed to hear their request, the rest request of the mages of Paxwell, um, to recruit to hear their uh, request in person and speak with them to decide whether or not he has helped. He goes, um and he he straight up says, and he goes, Well, I know that we have a past history know that that does not affect my judgment in this matter I consider that matter separate and settled Um, but what you're asking now is much more than I would normally give away so he begins to ask them questions what happened? tell me the whole story and once again, Dandy takes the forefront to tell the story. And much like last time when she told it to the dwarves, Dandy becomes uncharacteristically serious. Um, you know, Dandy being a kender will go off on tales and this and that happened and there was the monster and we fought an elemental. But in this situation, uh, she takes on a much more serious tone and she stays to the important facts. And you could tell that this matters a lot to Dandy. And she tells every detail that, you know, really needs to be shared, doesn't leave out much at all. Some of the stuff for the uh, Ventoy and helping Cole, that wasn't really important to this, so she may have left some of that out, because again, she's on a schedule here. Uh, But she does an incredibly good job of sticking to the points, much so their friends are genuinely surprised that she did it with the dwarves, and now she's done it again. After she finishes her story and sits back down, Thomas appears to be thinking for a moment or two, and He says, you must understand that access to the sands is incredibly limited. There are only a very small handful of ways in existence to get in there. And I do have in my possession an artifact that would allow you to do so. But this artifact has only a limited amount of uses... And once it's used, it can used up. It can never be recharged per se. Once it's used up, it's done. So you're asking me to use one of the most powerful artifacts in my possession to transport six of you. It's not just one person. Six of you, which is going to use up even more power on an artifact that is one of a very few ways to do something incredibly powerful that cannot be replaced I hope you understand what you are asking I remember meeting Michael and I remember his Menandra. I would ask that I could see it please Last time, he didn't really hand it over, if you remember. Michael didn't want to give it. But in this situation, they, they need this guy's help. There was no him, So they, of course, get it out of the chest of holding, which he, hmm, chest of holding. Didn't realize you had that last time. That's not an artifact. It's a magic item, but it's still pretty rare. Um, so he's like, hmm, magic artifact. Um, they return with that, give it to him. He looks it over and agrees that the dwarven workmanship was um, perfectionally done. He goes, I see no flaw in this. He goes, were I to create this into a magical artifact myself, I would assume this is the first time it's made. There's no flaw in its repair. Um, so they did an exceptional job. Anything less than this, and you would have had no hope at all. Uh, he goes, but he gives it back to him. He's like, he's like, he goes, yes. He goes, Cause he, he goes, you know, he, this is a guy who knows magic item and artifacts. This is his thing. And so if he saw even a tiny flaw in there, he's like, I'm not wasting this on you. I'm not going to send you in there on something that's not going to work. So he wanted to know, is this it? And then, of course, he asks the same question the dwarves asked. Why is Michael worth it? And once again tells the tale of how they met. His fall from grace. Doesn't leave out anything, even the part where he became the lich lord, if you will, and how that completely affected the type of man he became after that. King Thomas listens intently and says, You've given me a lot to think about. And I will say that the information you give me is enough that I will have to think on this. I'll be honest. At first, I assumed I would be telling you no directly out. But I have to say, what you've told me has intrigued me. But I will need some time to think on that. You must stay here the rest of the day. You'll be given rooms. He doesn't say it, but they pretty much assume they're going to be under guard. The last time they didn't have Artemis and Dandy under guard, remember what happened. But he goes, you'll be given place to stay. Um, You may spend time here. I will let you know in the morning. By this point, it's like mid-afternoon. I will let you know in the morning what my decision is. He stands and excuse himself, and he leaves along with Damon. Tinker Tork um, steps outside and then comes right back in with a Uh, Young, obviously mage apprentice uh, introduces him as Matthew and says Matthew, or Matt for short um, Matt will see to you having rooms if you'll follow him please characters really without much to do are taken up the stairs to a a doorway where they go through and it's a hallway that leads to uh, several rooms, so it leads to imagine a round room with several doors around it, the round room is like a common room, there's some couches and such there tables you could sit at windows, and then the doors lead to bedrooms. And they're given this basic area to themselves. So they have their own place to sleep, but they still have a place they can hang out, um, because there's a door that leads into that, and it's not said, but they understand they're not to be wandering around. To also locate another way in. He would want them to use the sands to locate another way in. It's possible. It's possible. So. They brought food that evening. They eat in that little common area. Um, spending the day hanging out. Um, Matt occasionally comes in to check and see if there's anything they need. But they're mostly left to themselves. The next morning, again, they are uh, dressed and getting up. And uh, Matt returns to say, If you will follow me back down to the room you first met the king in, uh, we have a breakfast for you. Um, everyone is like, okay, and serious about it. And Darsh is like, really? Breakfast? Okay. And they make their way back down the stairs and get into that room. And it's a huge breakfast, which Darsh is delighted to see. And they begin to eat and enjoy their meal. And they're in there for a little while. They're finishing up their meal. Well, everybody's finished except Darcy's He's still eating. Um, when both King Darkmoon and Damon once say, There's no breakfast pie, sadly. There's no breakfast pie. <laughs> they don't know his love for pie here. They may have arranged that. Makes you wonder. If for dinner, is his favorite thing pot pie. I mean, just saying. So both King Darkmoon and High Priest Damon walk inside and have a seat with them, and begins to discuss his decision. He explains, due to the potential power that exists within the sands, because there's a lot. Imagine, all knowledge exists pretty much within there. Which is interesting and something I've been asked about. Because there's a god of knowledge and there's the goddess of time. But this is in the realm of time. Because it's not knowledge per se. You're not going to find a textbook or a book that explains how magic works. Each of these books just basically tells history. It tells what happened. It's, you know, it may say so-and-so cast a spell. It's not going to say how he cast that spell. So you'll learn the history of things that happened, but you won't. it's not a knowledge-based thing, only a knowledge of things that have passed. But that's still a lot of power. Mm-hmm. He also explains that due to the dangers within the sands itself, he's concerned that the Pisces may be lost there. Inside, I will be basically handing you access to overwhelmingly large amounts of power. And if you can't survive it, I've just wasted a large chunk of my magic item artifact, if you will. So I'm in a a tough spot here, because I honestly feel that your quest is noble, and had this been a, a magic item that I could use whenever I want, I wouldn't hesitate. Well, I would, because you'd still go in and die, probably. So he said, after long thinking and discussion with his advisors, he has decided on a way for the characters to both prove that they can handle the sands and pay for his assistance. He explains that several days to the north, on the very boundary of his kingdom, there is a very large great lake. And in the center of that lake is a very, very old tower. The tower is magically protected. So much so that he's barely able to even scry inside. He's been watching it for a couple years. The one thing he has determined, that inside of this tower is an artifact of pretty powerful nature. His people want to develop around this lake. The lake is teeming with fish. And he would bring a large food source and f- fresh water uh, to his kingdom and would allow him to expand into a very profitable area. But tower looks abandoned. He goes, well, it's magically protected. I've seen no signs over the last three years that anything inside has moved or anything lives. I do not believe that it is currently inhabited. Also, those who live near the lake, which is only a small group of people, surprisingly, considering how successful it is, who want to develop it more, are very, very hesitant to do so. Because sometimes people go missing. And sometimes boats don't return, especially if they're out at night. And sometimes mysterious sounds are heard from the lake at night. He says, go to this island, find a way inside, and bring me the magical artifact inside, as well as anything else you find magical in nature. And I will grant your request and give you access to the sands. The characters don't really have to think about it. There's really no choice. I'm going to say dragon turtles. No, not dragon turtle. Dragon turtles are actually saltwater creatures. You're not going to find them really in a lake. It's more of an ocean type thing. Just saying. Um, they say they accept. They're like, we, we really don't have any choice. He's like, no, you really don't. He's like, uh, but I feel this will benefit both of us. And considering the nature of people who've gone missing over the last couple of years, and my military have found no sound signs of anything—ships no ships or bodies or anything of that nature—we honestly would not know. Them. King Darkmoor does not leave the kingdom. Oh, sorry, Turtle. Um, uh, turtle, if you had a great lake with an underwater passage that led to the ocean, that was, that was deep underwater and traveled miles, the dragon turtle could use that as a way to go from the ocean to the uh, freshwater. You have to probably come up with some type of situation why the waters aren't mixed, but uh, you could say the freshwater flows into the sea. So a turtle could live in there, but they don't normally would. It would be a way for him to get in and out and potentially be another way to link in some type of other uh, long-term story plot. Just throwing that at you. Not that I've done that. (laughs) Not with the demon. Not with the dragon turtle, anyways. Um, Darkmoor says that he will provide them uh, with any supplies they need, food, things of so nature, which of course they take. And they agree to head out immediately. They're told that when they get there, look for a gentleman named Jeb Gibbons. Jeb is a local in that area, a loyal member of the kingdom uh, of, of, of such, and uh, will be able to help them. I've, I've sent a message already that you'll be coming. Uh, is there a way to make a weaker for a low-level topic? Yep, yeah, have it be a baby. I mean, it's still a monster. Have it be a, a very small, young one that hasn't come into its magical abilities yet because they don't normally have them right from birth. Young dragons are the easiest way to introduce any form of dragon. Um, so our, our heroes head north. The road they're on is stone paved. It's, it's, a, it's a nice road. They're able to travel quickly. They don't take horses, but uh, <laughs> they didn't ask. Because, again, not everybody has a horse that will hold Darsh. You know, I mean, it's more often than not, the answer is we just don't have one. And he's not going to walk while everybody else is running, walking or driving and such. They head out, but uh, the road is populous. Again, this is a booming area. Darkmoor is known as a safe haven, and a lot of different people have found their way since Merge Worlds into his kingdom as a safe place to live. And he's known as a very benevolent um, and caring lord. He never leaves the city. Ever. For any reason partially because he's the last surviving member of his family, and it's his duty to not only protect these people, but all of the magic artifacts and items that have been gathered from his family over the generations. Uh, he was away when the mer- when when all this happened, the Merge. Luckily, he still came through, but by the time he returned to his kingdom, his family had been killed and had been taken over by evil, and it was a whole story. Uh, so he doesn't leave ever, which is one reason why he can't go and investigate this tower situation himself. And none of his apprentices are strong enough to do that. Nick Rowe, I've always wanted to get into Dungeons & Dragons. How would I go about doing that? That is not a bad question. In fact, oddly enough, I just put out a video this week called What is Dungeons & Dragons? It's a new series I'm doing called Behind the Dice. It talks about the very basic general information and some of the material you would need to get started. How it works and the basics. Uh, if you check my channel for that, Behind the Dice, it's only 20 minutes long. Um, I think it will answer a lot of the very early questions about how to get started and what materials you'll new- need to get beginning. I press. I probably should have mentioned that on the stream earlier, in case you're listening audio. That video exists, and it is a video series that I will be continuing over uh, a long period of time. Uh, right now, potentially once a month or every two weeks, I'm still working on that. That are going to cover different Dungeons & Dragons topics and... Uh, Things from uh, helping DMs, helping players, helping creating stories. Uh, just kind of sharing my experience of over- doing this over 30 years. Uh, oh, you're welcome, Necro. Thank you for stopping by. Hope you enjoy it. <laughs> so, uh, yes. Each night they're able to find an inn. They travel through small towns, farmland. It, it, it really has the same kind of feel of serenity. You know, where someone who's good has built a place... And has built up a way of protecting people, and people are attracted to that. It has a lot of that same feel. Or instead of a temple, it's a mage. So they find inns; they're able to find places to stay. Um, you know, all they have to do is say, "Yeah, the king sent us to do this," and people are like, "Oh yeah, you're welcome. Hop on in." They get a little bit more information about the as they get closer about the goings on. That yes, people have been missing, people go there, but very few stay long. The few that are are pretty grizzled people that you know don't have a lot of family and such and are willing to take that gamble to try to make money. Um, but they get there, so it takes them about three days of travel and they get there, uh, in the late afternoon of the third day. Um, the inn, which is named Sparrow's Cove Inn, is the name of the town, Sparrow's Cove. It's a very large lake. You really can't see the other side of it. You can barely see the island with the tower in the distance. The sun is still up. It's just starting to go down. Like I said, it's late afternoon, but it's not dark out yet. And they go inside the inn, and uh, immediately the innkeeper, Jeb, he's like, is he knew what he was looking for. He's like, ah, I've been waiting for you, my friends. Portly man, but a friendly guy. Uh, one of the early settlers of this area after the merge, uh, when they realized that this water was literally just teeming with sea life, just horrendous amounts of fish. It's like, you know, you just row out and they'll just jump in the boat. Not really, but, you know, that kind of a, of a concept. He gives them the information, much of what they've already learned, that, yes, people sometimes go missing. Uh, rarely anyone staying in an inn or a building, but some people will camp out, People who are traveling around the lake to fish and things of that nature. um, They will go missing. Um, But there hasn't been anything like buildings attacked. They haven't seen anything of that nature. And it's been going on since they got here. And it's not common. Maybe months in between these things happen. But it's just common enough. uh, Usually it happens at night. Um, But there have been a few situations where even during the day some boats have not returned. And these are on good weather days. You know, it's stormy weather. You're like, okay, maybe somebody sunk. It's a deep lake. Um, but um, also, anyone who has gone to the island has not returned. Simple as that. King even sent a group of six well-armed of his uh, warrior types to go check it out. Uh, and they didn't return. So... No one goes to the island. No one goes near the island. But considering it's a good-sized island and it's smack dab in the middle, that makes it hard to fish these incredibly, positively successful waters. They're teeming with sea life, I tell you. So, again, our heroes find them looking at a quest on a lake. You remember way back, they did a quest for Firemoon after his, uh, his wedding to go and help out. And that's where they found out about the islands that became Darstopia. You'll remember that. Hopefully you remember that if you've been watching. <laughs> he says they can arrange for them a boat. Do they want to leave tonight, or would they like to rest here at the inn? He'll provide the rooms and head out in the morning. They discuss it, and while they're in a hurry and want to get out there with all the dangerous stuff happening on the night, and none of them being—I mean, Darsh is a is a professional captain of a ship, but you know, a rowboat or a small sailboat, not quite what he's used to. Uh, Big Mac, Paco. Sorry to interrupt your story. I just wanted to tell you somehow I had a dream of you running around the street drunk while your, while your friend, <laughs> nice, <laughs> friends and wife are watching. Oh, so much like on stream. <laughs> is it like Car- Carmen Some threat kills everyone, but nobody knows how or why. Carmen. Uh, kind of. Yes, they don't know what it is. Um, there's been no theft. You know, nothing's stolen anything from anywhere you know what I mean and none of, the people that go missing in the campsites they, they're they not finding like them torn apart or their stuff pillaged it's just the people go missing so yes they're not sure of what it is I like having myster- mysteries I like giving them uh, clues to things that they have to figure out themselves you'll find that a lot in a lot of my uh, adventures I don't like to all be just here's a thing go kill things till you get there I want them to be to figure stuff out you know they, agree, they decide that they're going to spend the night and rest and head out fresh in the morning when they have light. So they're given rooms, adequate rooms. They're pretty nice. Darsh is a little bit big for the bed, but he makes it work. Uh, and they all kind of hang out and spend their evening. The next morning, uh, when they rise, they have a nice meal. Darsh eats more than everybody, but there's a good meal provided. Um, this is one of the few places in town that actually is a business. There's a small, couple little small shops and stuff there, but uh, the only other business building in town is from like the Darkmoon merchants thing, where a lot of people will catch their fish, take it there, sell it to that company that runs that, and then they ship the fish to the villages and the castle and things of that nature. Um, and the merchants' guild is overseen by Darkmoon itself. He does not allow them to get cheated. Fair pricing in Dartmouth. Again, another thing that draws people in. He always fair prices and low taxing, which, I mean, let's be honest, don't we all want that? After their meal, uh, Jeb explains to them that he has arranged for them a small boat. Uh, It's not large, but it should be more than enough to get them where they're going. It's not a particularly windy day, but it does have uh, oars, so they should be able to you know, paddle their way there uh, with with the minor breeze they have. It's just a very small sloop. It's not big at all. In fact, Darsh, it makes it a little bit crowded. Fortunately, Dandy and Mercy and Artemis are all tiny. Tobias and Uric are regular. How deep is this lake? They don't know. No one's ever been to the bottom of it, to be honest with you. Uh, Again, there's not really a lot of mages living here. No one's ever tried to go deep swimming, but they know that at... Uh, you know, it gets very, very deep to the point that people haven't been able to see the bottom at certain areas. Uh, which, again, normal and very, very large lakes. So, they start making their way. Um, that The night before, as they're looking out their window, they can see the tower appears to have a very soft glow about it in the distance. Almost like a, a, a lighthouse kind of thing, but with just itself, it's kind of glowing, which definitely leads towards the magical defense thing that they heard about the next morning Darst checks the boat before they go finds that it's in good quality and seaworthy uh, turns out it's uh, Jeb's brother-in-law's boat and uh, the brother-in-law was told that the king himself would uh, pay him handsomely for the use of it for a few days and that if it was lost he would replace it so Jeb's brother's like okay paid and you'll replace it and I don't have to go on the water and fish for a couple days I'm alright with that uh, so Jeb uh, is like the honorary mayor of the town. Not really. Like he's not anything like that. He doesn't have any official rank. But he, uh, the, the King Darkmoon does s- send a lot of messages to him on behalf and has him oversee things. And he reports back to him and Tinker Torque. There's a few mount. There's a few guards there as well from the city. But this is technically just outside what Darkmoor considers his border. Um, if this issue is resolved by the characters, he will extend his borders to take the lake as well, which you know, that's a really money-making move right there. With a lake like this, start developing around it and things. Um, that would be very profitable to the kingdom. So, you could see why he would want that to happen. So, they get on their boat, and they start going. Uh, it is, like I said, very, very low breeze at all, and Darsh does most of the rowing. As such, it takes nearly an hour to get there. Because uh, while it's not really blowing, there is a there's a little bit of movement in the water, currents and such, and a little resistance there. The weather is a little overcast, but it doesn't look like it's going to really storm or anything of that nature. Uh, and the trip is made to the island without issue. Remember, nobody said you can't make it to the island. They said nobody comes home. As they make their way on the island, the island has some trees. The island itself is, is, is a good size, but the tower takes up a good chunk of it. When I say tower, it's not just like a big silo. It's a tower, but with like a small keep kind of thing built around it. Um, nowhere near the size of the Paxwall Mage Tower or anything like Darkmoon's Tower. Um, and it's smaller than Serenity Keep in the temple, but it's still a decent size. It's way bigger than a home. And Tobias says, looking at it. He goes, this is looks like the place that a mage would live. Like, I'm not gonna lie, this looks like a mage place. Um, And the fact that there's magic here, and an artifact that a mage wants, he goes, I wouldn't be surprised that this be the type of magic we find. He goes, doesn't really have the feel of cleric magic, and Artemis agrees. So they kind of climb up there, they gotta go up the island, some rocky stuff they gotta climb up a little bit uh, to make their way up, and they get up near the very top of it. Now, as they're walking carefully towards the tower, they get a little, little, little more than 10 feet away from the tower. When they realize that the image in front of them shimmers a little bit. Every so often. And they stop. Tobias casts his detect magic spells. And sure enough, he's like, there's a force field or energy field completely in front of us surrounding this tower. He goes, I've never seen a magic like it. I only know that it's there. Dandy picks up a rock, throws it at it, and hits it and falls to the ground. just like hitting a wall. Dandy takes her hoop pack, and Tobias is like to say, no! She taps it. Nothing happens. It's hard. Tobias is like, oh, okay. She goes, see, it's not that bad. She put and boom, Dandy's in the air, flying backwards, almost 15 feet. They hear her hit a tree and then tumble th- to the ground. They all go rushing over. She's completely unconscious. Her hand is blackened and singed... like she put it in a fire. Artemis immediately heals the damaged hand... and tries to heal her... but she doesn't wake up right away. It takes a good 15-20 minutes for her to come out of it. Uh, But the magical energy literally tossed her back. Inanimate objects didn't seem to be a problem. But living things cannot get through. So they're like, okay... Tobias starts casting some spells, doing what he can. He comes back, he goes, this is beyond my capabilities. I don't have any way of dispelling this. Artemis has already done a little bit of stuff herself. In the same way, they're like, yeah, she's like, this this isn't anything I can dispel either. And again, she doesn't come from that school of magic. She's not a big dispeller, if you will. Um, so there's that. Yum. Okay. So are like, well, we can't get in this way. So they start making their way around the castle. Maybe there's an entrance, a keep, a weak spot. Tobias and Artemis both casting spells. They spend several hours slowly going around looking for difference. At one point, they even tempted to see, can we dig under it? Maybe it just goes to the ground. And Darsh being very careful, using a stick, just trying to scoop dirt away a little ways. He's not trying to get close. And he's hitting it, but sure enough, even the foot down he digs in, it's still there. So at least it goes partway into the ground. And they don't have time to go digging anyways, right? So, they continue around. And they're not able to find any type of weak spot. And on the other side, it's actually a relatively large cliff face. It go, The rock goes up and around behind the keep, and they have to either climb up or climb down. Um, Dandy, uh, who's feeling better now, and uh, Tobias decide to climb up. Tobias not being the spryest of people, but uh, he wants to stay up near the magic shield, because if anybody, he needs a test for weakness. Dandy's the best climber. Uh, Darsh, who is A good climber on boats, not so much on rocks. Uh, He and the rest of them kind of go down the cliff to see if they can find anything down there. Signs of the missing people, anything of that nature. Dandy and Tobias find nothing up top that would lead them to believe that there's any type of entrance. The shield just continues to go on. And they make their way down the other side of this cliff face to meet their friends at the bottom. Where they are surprised to find their friends have found a small cave entrance. The cave entrance itself only appears to be about five and a half feet tall, maybe about two feet wide. Darsh would be hard put to squeeze through, but just poking and looking in, they could see that it's much bigger through the crack. There appears to be like a cave or tunnel in there. It's dark of course, and with them being in the daylight their information is not working inside really. You can't be in darkness to see in darkness. Even uh, Mercy's headband works the same way. When she's in darkness, she can see in darkness. Although it helps her even in gloomy situations. Not as much so. So, there's a lot of heat coming out of that. I should probably get to that section. Um, The cave itself feels hot. Not like overwhelmingly hot like fire inside, but it, it does feel warm. And they hear a sound that sounds like heavy breathing coming from a distance inside. With nothing else to lose, they decide to go ahead and go inside the cave and look. Because why would I put a cave there if they weren't meant to go in it? Obviously a plot device. Sometimes I do put uh, dead-end caves in places and they'll have to go into things and there'll be three or four caves before they find the right one. I enjoy making them travel for hours only to find a dead-end. I'm a jerk like that. But everything can't be handed to you on a silver platter. You know, you got to work for it. Sometimes, more more of a time-consuming thing, because you think about it, if they're like, okay, we've got this much time on a quest, or we've got this stuff to do, and they waste hours doing it, now they get out, it's time to rest again. They've blown a whole nother day. Um, Or worse, if they're in an area where bad stuff happens at night, by the time they get back, it's dark out now, they got to deal with that. So, things like that are a great way to, uh, A get things moving to a, or to a time you need, either slowing it down or speeding it up. And it also makes it a little bit more realistic. You don't always find the right door on the first try. Um, let's see. Oh, one other thing I forgot to say. I apologize. As they circled the tower, they found no doors, and the windows appeared to have their shutters closed. So there's no doors that would show, even if the force field was here, that you could just walk inside. So on the north side of the tower, they were, they were coming from the south, south up. They, went around it. they found that cave. They decide they're going to go ahead and give it a shot. Dandy goes through first, immediately checking for traps, immediately followed by Tobias. Uh, Darsh was not happy about that. He wanted to go next, but Tobias assures him, listen, Dandy and I can go a little ways in. If we come across the shield, I can sense it. I'll be able to use it with my spell. There's no reason for all of us to, to wake our way all the way in there. Darsh is like, I do like the thought of not climbing through this hole. So Dandy and Tobias go in a short distance and they go in far enough that they would believe that they should have gotten to the, sh- to the field but it's not there. But what they do find, very soon after they get inside again, it's very warm in there but it immediately starts going down and curving underground. They go back to their friends who agree okay, we'll all go in there and they all squeeze through the crack and most of them just walk through. Some of them squeeze through. Darsh. <laughs> and then they begin to make their way down this new tunnel. I just say the further they go and the deeper they go, the warmer it gets to the point that it's hot, like a, not like it's going to kill you hot. I want to stress that. It's not like you're, they're walking into lava or anything like that, right? It's just going to be very hot in there. Um, and steamy, I should say that as well. Oh, give me one second. I got to sneeze. Maybe not. Okay, Thought I had to sneeze. I got through it. Um, heavy breathing uh, the heat is not enough to cause damage but it does make it uncomfortable as they are going down uh, for probably about just 10 minutes not real long, they come into what appears to be a relatively larger chamber it looks naturally formed, it doesn't look like someone carved it, this looks like a bit of a chamber here and um, on the other side is, you can see the the chamber's round size, maybe a a, uh, let me think of size here um, 30 feet across. It's not super huge. It's relatively rounded. Got the stalaggies on the edges and more on the roof. Uh, but on the ground are holes about this big around, like a big dinner plate. And every so often, steam will vent out of a couple of them. And they surround the floor in the room and then past them they can see there's a another, the cave continue, tunnel continues on. Cobalt uh, layer? Nah, I don't use cobolds that much. I'm not a big fan of them as a monster. Plus, it doesn't take long before kobolds become, you know, too weak to to, ha- to bother a party. I do like using germaline, though. Way more annoying. Um, Dandy, of course, sneaks Ward checking for traps. As Tobias casts a spell, checking for traps. And no traps are found. Again, the cave entrance, what they're walking in, this looks naturally formed. Um, and so they bumble along Germaline starts with a J I think it's J-E-R uh, Germalane J-E-R-M-E-L-A-I-N-E I believe they are little tiny fat dudes that are only about this short live in loincloths have little tiny spears very unintelligent but man are there a lot of them living in a colony little tiny dudes grunting all bald headed big ears big nose fun little dudes When like oh it's a little guy and then there's 200 little guys That all do one hit point. (laughs) Hi baby. I am oh much smaller than a halfling. They're literally a foot tall. They're little tiny things. Finding that there is no traps Dandy inches forward. Decides to test the steam. Is the steam that if they because the holes are relatively close together. They squeeze through, is the steam going to melt them or burn them? Is it that hot? And she tests it, not with her hand, but, you know, she tests it somewhat. I don't remember. And finds that the steam is like being in a sauna, you know, just a steam that would blow out, a little uncomfortable since they're all enclosed and such, and it's a little damp. And makes it very humid. But she's like, eventually, she put her hand right on a steam vent. She goes, this, this, it doesn't hurt. It's fine. Everybody's like, okay, stop putting your hands in things, but Okay. I remember them saying that. Stop putting your hands at things. We have other ways to test this. She'd already poked the shield. They're like, stop that. So they begin to make their way across the room through the vents. Trying not to step in them. They they look like they're relatively deep. But there's enough room in between that it's not a problem. And then suddenly... About that time... Half of the group has made it into the steam vents. The other half haven't started walking through yet. And that first half of the group, of course, is going to be Dandy, then Darsh, followed by Tobias, who normally will be a step back. They're the three that are in there. After that is uh, Artemis, Ulrich, and then Mercy. So as they step inside, from the holes, streaking out, very long necks with lizard-like heads with very sharp fangs uh how, let me see here there are eight of them there's more holes than this but eight long necks probably all each about six to seven feet long almost looking like a long snake but with like a almost like a, a short snubbed alligator head on the end if that gives you an example comes out and immediately starts attacking at them. And they have to... They're in combat. Now, these three are basically surrounded, right? Artemis was about to step in. Immediately, Ulrich grabs her and pulls her behind, which is, you know, kind of his job here. And Mercy charges past him, so that he, he'll he then draw his weapon to defend Artemis, make sure you nothing's know coming from behind, and then help fight. But he grabs Artemis and immediately steps to, to block her from anything attacking. They'll be... These eight heads that pop up in the holes are immediately attacking the three in the front. Darsh, of course, immediately... He has his weapon out. They're walking through here. These guys are armed. They have their weapons drawn. So he immediately starts attacking. Dandy starts poking. And Tobias is like... <clears throat> tries casting spells. But it's hard to cast spells when steam is shooting at your face and long, snake-like, snub-nosed alligator heads are trying to bite you. And he is unable to cast a spell successfully. Uh, and they're, they're good-sized heads. Just enough to fit through the holes, basically. And they enter into combat. The fight takes several rounds of combat. Uh, Darsh, right off the bat, right off the bat, luckily rolls high and with his strength is able to cleave one of the necks in half. And the rest of it slithers back down. What monster is this? They don't know yet. They don't know. Well, it's obviously more because there's a bunch of them, you know. But he manages to cut one of the snake things in half. It flops to the ground and stub falls back down the hole and the other part lays in the ground and flops around kind of thing. Ooh, chocolate. And um, the rest, I'm going to look at a picture. Oh, not yet. Not yet. That's part of the mystery, sir. You'll find out, I promise. Battle commences. Artemis immediately tries to throw a heel at Tobias. He hadn't even been hit yet, but she knows he's going to be. (laughs) <laughs> tries to preemptively heal him. She tried that once or twice before. I don't let that happen. But it was a nice thought. Um, this it's technically she won initiative, which means she goes first. And there's nothing to heal, so her spell's wasted. Um, sure enough, he has his staff, and he's trying to bonk and keep it more. Just keep him at bay. He's just more defending himself at this point. Um... And he reaches in, to, uses his turn to reach in and pull out a wand of magic missiles. This is something that he carries and uses on occasion. That's not bad. <clears throat> I got another one. All right. So, the battle commences. When the, when Darsh, very early on, cleaves one of the creatures in half, the other ones immediately turn on him screaming and hissing and different noises. One does chomp on Tobias and one is meddling with Dandy, but the other ones are really focused on Darsh at this point. Mercy, of course, comes charging in with her bonk stick, her Morningstar, and just because it's not really dealing with her, she comes in and gets a good cl- thunk on the head and hears bone crunch and it just slithers back down the hole. Dandy, incredibly dexterous. She's having no problem dodging the heads. To the point that it almost becomes fun. Like she's just spinning around like, no, no. Almost like a bullfighter. Like, eh, eh. Flipping around, not being able to get hit. But of course, she's doing so much of that, she's not really able to hit back herself. Um, Ulrich then steps in, once he's assured that Artemis is far enough back that she's okay. And begins attacking attacking as well. Four of the creatures are cleaved, cut, squished, or stabbed. Minor damage to the party. But after four of them die, the other ones slide back down the holes. Tobias checks the remaining head, thing, body, halves, whatever there, and he's like, he, he's never seen anything quite like it. But the sea, it does not. So, they are, you know, kind of looking at it. You know, He's like, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to save some pieces, take some teeth and some stuff, put them in vials, the stuff that he does. Uh, put them in bags and stuff and they all scooch through the holes but no more pop out it appears that they have scared the rest of them once they're all through and in the other passage they're like okay we must continue down because it's done Dragons. So what else are we going to do <laughs> and they continue down as they go deeper and traveling further they come to a level section almost like a hallway straightens out a little bit more than anything else has and is relatively flat. It's about 50 feet long. And once again, now on the walls on both sides are more holes just like what they saw in the previous room. No vents or steam coming out of them. Just holes, perfectly round at this point. They're like, okay. It could be the same thing or it could be something very different led to make us believe it's the same thing. That was Dandy's idea. She goes, this really could be traps. They could make us think that it's the same type of thing, but instead, there could be traps in here that we end up triggering something else. It was a very good thought on her part. I'm just devious enough to do that. So Dandy goes, I'm going to move quietly, move silently, and check for traps, and slowly go up there myself. Party wasn't really happy with it, but her plot was sound. And so she does her rolls, move silently, move quietly. There's two abilities she has. As well as check trap. And she starts making her way down the hallway. At least the first three feet. Because then out of the first hole pops another one of them snake things. (laughs) This was not a devious trick. It's more snake things. And Dandy is now caught in them. Like, there's some on either side of her. In fact, they start chopping at her. She has no choice but to run further down the tunnel, which just makes more of them come out. Everyone else who's not in there wants to charge forward and help, but the first few holes of snakes things facing at them. The snake things are closer to the ground than the top. The, the, the thing's not real high. Darsh can fit through it just barely, but the holes are more along ground level. I, I should state that, on, but just on the sides. And, you know, doing what they do, Darsh kicks in his super speed charge boots and just literally, using his shield, charges into them to try to catch up the dandy, successfully bonking a couple of them a little bit on his way through, not enough to do any serious damage, but enough to, you know, stun him a bit, take him out of the, the for a round. Um, and then is able to charge through to Dandy. The head snake things were not expecting this. Mercy and Ulrich start making their way in as well, chopping at the snakes that are at the front, trying to make their way through. Once again, this time it was also eight of them popping out of the holes. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry, hold on. Ten of them. I'm sorry, there's more this time. So ten of them start popping out. Again, Darsh is able to successfully, with his incredible strength, cleave several of them in half. And each time he does, the body just flops back in the hole and the head lays on the ground. Dandy gets a good... Uh, no, I just want to be honest. I have it written down here. Uh, and they get they get chomped on a little bit. You know, Dandy takes a couple of little hits. Even though she's very dexterous, she's in the middle of a bunch of them. She has four or five attacking her at once. It's hard to defend against that. And they're quick. Tobias starts... This one is a situation you can pop off some decent level spells. Um, but after a few rounds again... The heroes manage to destroy five of them or six of them or something like that. And the rest of them flee. They're very quick but careful to get through this hallway as quickly as they can. Being prepared for more, but no more come out. And they successfully make it through. They go deeper and the passageway starts spiraling. It seems. they're quite deep now. They're well below, they have been for a while, well below the level of the water. It's getting even steamier and hotter. Now it's getting really uncomfortable. Uh, like they're sweating in their clothes and they're all wet from the humidity. Um, Not enough that, again, they're going to die from heat, but it does tend to get a little bit more challenging to breathe. And then it levels off and enters into a larger chamber than they've come across before. This room... uh, Let me explain it down... It's v- even wetter and humid in here. It's a large chamber. And the floor is mostly bubbling pools of incredibly hot water. Boiling water. Source of all the steam and stuff. And they can look at it and say, this water will hurt us. There's a bit of a windy path. And again, it looks kind of natural. Like, it's not like someone built a road, you know. It's like you know, the way the pools and the water lands in the cave. It's deeper in spots. And there's a couple little branches off. But it's mostly like a windy, twisty... Uh, way kind of across it, and they can't quite see what's on the other side. The room is filled with steam. The steam occasionally will pop up out of the water as well. There's obviously steam vents bursting out of there. But the room is very misty, and they can't see across it. But the little path is most... Three of them could carefully walk side by side, or one of them and a darsh. Um, But it's... they, They can't go through... Thank you, Omar. One minute. Thank you, Grant. These are the thing catching up from earlier. I'll open up another one of these bad boys. There we go. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So, without anything else to do, they have to make their way in the room. Very careful to try to stay away from the water's edge. Because, you know, it's hot. So why would you want to get in that? That's gross. They're walking forward. Room's relatively loud. It's like boiling water, right? It's bubbling. It's not like a bubble, a bubble. It's boiling water. Occasionally a big bubble will pop. They get a little splash. You know, if you ever been cooking on the stove, a little, little bubble splash. They're trying to make their way through. Those with shields are kind of holding it against the, the side of the water they're on and trying to keep the squishies in the middle. Block them as much as they can. Um, Ulrich has a shield. Uh, he can fight sword and shield. But most of the time he prefers to fight two swords. Darsh has a shield and Mercy has a shield. I thought I should clarify that. Suddenly. About that time. The beast comes charging. Out of the mists. Splashing through the hot water, which itself is not good. Let's see here. At this point, the Hydra has 12 heads as it comes charging out of the mist. A large beast splashing through the water and begins to attack. Our heroes are in a bit of a precarious situation. Here's a giant beast. It's not snake things. Those are the heads of a Hydra. And of course, when you chop off the head of a Hydra, more grow back. Of course they were important, but I can't tell you that. You have to figure that out yourself. It's not a normal Hydra. This is a personal me Hydra that I've designed, uh, which is a little bit different. Hydras have more of a draconic looking head, uh, but it's a custom designed Hydra for my situation. Uh, yay, merge ones. So they begin fighting. So the the difficult part for this combat for them is that to kill the Hydra they have to do damage to the body. Because cutting off a head, after a few rounds another head pops out sometimes too. This time Hydra was not guaranteed. I rolled. There was a fifty fifty shot of another head growing or two heads growing. And they also had to be careful not to fall in the water while they were doing this. And they're already taking... Everybody took one point of damage every round just because of the hot water splashing on them. So every round the battle went on, they took at least one point of damage from the hot water. That's everybody. It's a big beast splashing in this cave. We'll get to that, Turtle. I'll get to it. Chill out. I'll get there. I promise I will answer all your questions as we go through. So to get to the body, you have to destroy a certain amount of heads. It's kind of how a hydro fight works. you got to destroy heads, but you got to destroy enough heads in a small period of time... ...to get to the body before more heads grow. So if you can kill the body, the heads will stop growing. Darsh and Ulrich were incredibly useful in this situation. Again, using bladed weapons... Mercy literally just tosses her Morning Star on the ground. It rolls in the water. And she draws her sword. Because against this type of creature, you want a bladed weapon. If you can do enough damage in a round, you sever a head. She's not worried about her Morning Star. She can automatically pop it back to her hand. Although, when she does later, she took a point of damage because it was in hot water. It was very hot. She didn't think of that when she dropped it in the water. Thinking, like, oh, I can get it back later. But it's hot now. I think of these things battle ensues. And of course, they have several rounds where they do damage and a few more heads pop out, but they actually have pretty good luck with this. Um, and it takes, I want to say it was 8 to 10 rounds to finally get to the point where they could get close enough to do damage. And Darsh had been saving it, uh, his his big hits and stuff, till he could get closer. And then he charged in and attacked at the body. Because once he got past the heads and was in close, the creature was fast, but it wasn't the back up away from him. And Darsh then started doing serious damage to the body while everybody else was still tackling at the heads. Dandy was using sling stones, trying to shoot at the body, um, as was Artemis, and Tobias was using, again, spells to try to attack the body. That's when he was the first one to do body damage because he has magic missile, which hits what you want. So he's literally shooting past the heads, and it's hitting what he needs. So he really started to do the first damage and was probably one of the most beneficial things because uh, that helped whittle it down a little bit before Darsh and the rest could get in there. But sure enough, or do we don't, yeah, you can also cauterize it with acid or fire, but you also have to do that in combat while other ones are trying to bite you. It's not easy to do. So they eventually manage to kill the hydra, of course. And as they kill it, its body falls over and kind of slides into the water and sinks completely below the water. Because the water is very deep and allows access outside of the island through water tunnels like coral. And that is how the creature got out and attacked ships and other things to take people. Swimming underwater. The thing is not an intelligent creature per se, but they have no doubt, our heroes, that this thing was put here by someone to protect this place. These caves were too designed. No hydras drilling holes for their heads to pop out. This was designed by someone for the hydra to protect it. Um, Because that's that's why. you You were coming on... You were coming in when you said about the turtle, weren't you? No! That just happened to be an answer to that question. That's how the sea demon got into the lake... Remember with the where the dead pirate... was sending a thing to try to kill... the one remaining sailor from the ship? That's how the sea demon... which is also a saltwater creature... had made it into that lake... was through an underwater... tunnel. That's how I explained how that creature got there. I used the same thing... for that previous part of the story. When you asked that question... it was just the honest answer... that would solve your problem... just like it solved mine. So they finally get through... They you make your way across this room. And they come to a door. Appears to be a wooden door. Nice little metal lock. The lock in the door, very rusted, obviously. Steam, right? Hinges and such. But it looks very thick. Tobias, oh, you're very welcome. Tobias casts a spell and, in fact, learns that the door is locked magically. Not with regular locks, but magically locked. It's a spell called Wizard Lock. And Tobias casts the spell and successfully dispels it. Which is not easy to do. It depends on how bad the chance you have depends on your level versus the level of the wizard who cast it. But he was able to dispel it. They open the door and it leads to a small room that actually pretty airtight. It's not hot in there. They quickly move inside. Cast wizard. It's actually dispel magic. Uh, dispel magic is what you'd have to use. So you're dis- your dispel magic the caster has to be a higher level then, by a certain amount of levels by uh, the wizard cast wizard lock to automatically unlock it and then depending on how the levels are it gets harder and harder and harder to successfully do it. If you're, I think, five or six levels second edition rules, five or six levels or more lower, you can't. You have no chance. Um, no, because remember I said the, they did from the head parts but I said the body flopped over and sunk into the deep hot water. He wasn't going in there after it. He did get parts from the heads, I mentioned that, but the body fell into the deep water. That's how they realized how deep it was. And Tobias estimated for the party, because they didn't know this, that's how the thing was getting in and out and probably attacking. Which it was, but I was just solving the riddle. So they go inside, they close the door behind them. It's actually relatively cool in here. That's nice. So the heat's not getting through, it's very airtight. And on the other side is sure enough, a set of stairs that just wind on up into the rock. After a moment of rest, Artemis heals up some stuff. They do not really have time to heal in that hot room in the Hydra. They just want to get out of there in case there was more than one. They heal up a little bit and then uh, they proceed to go up the stairs to see where next they go. They climb for a good distance. A lot of stairs. Tobias is getting tired. Tobias is not... He travels, but he's still a wizard. He's tired of walking up and down stairs. They manage to make up the stairs and finally into the tower. The way that you clue the party is some backstory like that. Yeah, I, I, always, I usually use an NPC for that. In this situation, it's Tobias. Sometimes it could have been Ulrich or Quan. It'd just be, you know, Quan, when they were inside of Oramon, Quan was out doing the, 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 the sneaky stuff. He comes back and tells them the stuff they need to know about the city. So, kind of things like that. Um, so, they make it up into what they believe is the tower. Um, when they get to the top there's another wizard locked door Tobias is successfully able to dispel it opening the door they find themselves in a relatively nice hallway suits of plate mail decoratively lined up pictures on the wall carpet on the floor although it looks a little old and dingy from just sitting there but there's no real like signs of serious age like you'd expect in an abandoned building partially probably because the thing's magically protected but you know that Uh, Dandy checks for traps and finds nothing... ...and they begin to start walking down the hallway. It's at that time... ...that several of the plate mail sets... attack them. Because they're not actually... uh, ...plate mail, they're actually something called... uh, ...helmed battle horrors. Which basically... ...magically enchanted plate mail that hurt your face. This is one of those situations where mercy... ...is particularly useful because her Morning Star, blunt weapon works better about stuff like this. That's it's another good thing about a party. A lot of people in d are always trying to take the weapons that do the most damage but a smart group will make sure that there's a weapon type of every type in your party. Somebody with a ranged weapon, somebody with a melee weapon that is blunt, somebody that has a sharp weapon. That way uh, if you come into certain types of creatures at least one of you is going to be a little bit more effective. Welcome Elemental Dad. Wanted to take a pre steams nap. Went longer. It's okay. We just killed a monster. Now we're inside this tower. Uh, let me see what else they find. They they fight for a few It's again. It's the things are relatively mindless. They're just very choppy and attacky. But they're kind of they're they're kind of strong. But they manage to defeat them and then continue on. Now Tobias is casting for spells moving forward, and luckily they don't find any more or any other traps. But after they defeat the. Um, Four of the eight plate mail are that. The other ones are just regular plate mail. Good plate mail, but, you know, what are they going to do with it? They uh, get at the end of the hallway, and it appears to be a very common area at the bottom floor of the temple. There's tables and chairs, bookshelves around, um, and there is also uh, another door, a couple doors. They open up the door carefully, check it, they're regular doors. One leads to, what's clearly an old kitchen-type area. Um, you know, just what you'd find in a regular-looking room and things. Um, uh, there's also another stairway in this section that wraps up the tower going up stairs, into you know, the tower part. Um, experience or objective leveling? Apologize, Terry, I'm confused by the question. What are you referencing, if you don't mind? I'll continue, and then I'll watch for the answer. Um, they search this area. They don't find anything of value. Uh, there are a bunch of books here. Some of them are old, uh, some of them in languages that they don't see. Tobias checks them. None of them are magic books per se, uh, like spell books or anything, but some of them are theories of magic, things that he would expect to find for apprentices or, or lower level mages and such. Do you love your players with experience or by completing objectives? Both. You gain experience by completing objectives. So... Um, In the early levels, I do experience a lot more strict. Making sure that people get experience based on what they do. When people start getting to the higher, harder to get levels... Normally, I just award them a half level every adventure. And I don't mean every night. When they complete a storyline. So when Michael first went down... If they ever successfully saved Michael... That would be the end of this adventure. They'd get a half level. I do it that way for two reasons. I've been very lucky... And the players that I've had don't want their characters to level too quickly because eventually you have to retire a character. Character gets too powerful, it's just not... You can't go running around as a 20th level character. It's just hard to throw regular stuff in there. Because there are only 20 levels. There are not only 20 levels. The player's handbook only gives you the basic 20 levels. But there are other guides, at least previously to 5th edition, edition—so called High Level Campaigning. I've got it, which will go all the way up to 30. It gives more powerful spells, how to handle uh, adventures and such with higher level characters. But to be honest, once you hit level 20, unless you're fighting demigods and traveling the plains to fight demons, you're not going to come across a lot that are challenging. So my rule has always been, you hit level 20, those characters retire and become NPCs. Um, So people who are attached to their characters don't want to get that out. How high are they now? I don't, I'll be honest, I don't remember exactly how high they were at this part of the story. I can say that when we stopped playing, they were all around level 14. When the, this group stopped playing. I had some more stuff for them, and I'm going to tell you guys that story, even though we never played it. I have plenty of story for after that. know um, Patchy. But, uh, yes. Uh, that's We were around level 14 uh, when they when they got there, when we stopped playing. So, searching this room, Tobias does take some of the books, gathers them up, says, Hey, you know, they're not magical, but we'll take them back and give it to Darkmoor anyways. And at this point, they're like, Okay, the other stairs that winds up to the tower proper, is the next place to go. They begin making their weapon way up, and they get to the door of what would be the first floor. This door is not wizard-locked, nor is it regularly locked, and they're able to go in pretty easily. It's not trapped either. Inside to be appears to be common quarters. Now, when I say this, that the the stairs continue up, but there's a door that would go into the level here, and the stairs would continue to go up around the, the tower. They go in there. These appear to be personal quarters. Several different rooms. Uh, probably people lived, maybe apprentices or servants or something of that nature. Um, the room looks. The rooms look neat. They don't look lived in. The beds are made. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of personal effects. So it doesn't look like there were people here at the time. Um, again they find uh, some beds, desks. Um, it's, it's dusty but nothing really worn. But no personal items, no treasure, and no readable books in this area. No, no books of, 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 of value. Of any kind. After searching this room thoroughly, they begin to make their way up to the second door. This door is wizard locked. And it takes Tobias two attempts to unlock this door, but he finally manages to do so, and inside they find obviously the personal quarters of someone of importance. This is a much fancier room, much bigger bed. Uh, it's got its own living area, fireplace, such like that. Again, a dusty room. They begin searching the room. There are tapestries and rugs of very much value on the floor and hanging on the walls. Again, you'd expect them to start to wear out at but this point if they'd been locked in here for years, but they're not. The one thing they find in this room surprisingly is someone in the bed. Well, someone who was in the bed. The skeletal remains of a humanoid, human-sized, lays in the bed. The sheets are funky because a body decomposed here, but as I mentioned, Things were wilting much slower with the protection, so it would have taken a very long time for the body to decompose. The hair that's on there is long and wispy, probably because things like that continue to grow after you die. If you didn't know, that fingernail's hair keeps growing after you die. So it's like that. Skeletal remains. The skeletons are still in pretty good places. There might be a little bit of funk on it, but nothing that's really meaty. And to the point where it smells musky, it doesn't even stink anymore. But these sheets in the bed are are definitely a little bit more ruined from the meat and the fluids that glooped out into it over time. Searching the room, the room is well decorated, but again, most items are old and dusty. Uh, There's some valuable rugs and tapestries. They decided not to take them. I was surprised. They find no treasure, uh, treasure or magical items. They do find some personal items. Although, everything seems to be very well organized. Everything is put up neatly Um, any clothes are well folded, there's nothing. um, It's almost like the person knew they were dying and prepared everything before they left. There's no sign of violence or trauma of any kind. The only thing they find there is a journal. Tobias checks it to make sure it's not magically trapped or anything. It's not. Uh, And he glances through the first few pages and finds that this is uh, the journal of a mage named Barnabas, who appeared to be the uh, owner of this tower. He doesn't read much into it. You know, they're kind of in a hurry. He doesn't have time to sit here and read books. Uh, But he definitely takes that with him. He feels that's something that uh, Darkmoor would like to have. More knowledge about this place. Searching the room for secret doors and all that kind of stuff. They don't find any. No magical stuff. So at this point, they decide to continue up to the third and final floor. When they reach this door, this door is much more intricate, with runes carved into the stone around it. It's a larger and well-made door. And Tobias finds that this door will require him to three attempts to unlock it. And these are the most stressful. Uh, It uses some high-level magic of Tobias's to manage to break this down, including a scroll that he had... ...in these situations was a one-use scroll... ...that was a little bit more powerful than he nor himself could normally cast... ...but he had to use that... ...and uh, tells he's not very happy about that... ...because that's a pretty powerful scroll and not easy to get a hold of. But they managed to finally unlock the door... ...Dandy checks it for traps... ...and sure enough, this one was... ...and successfully disarmed it. A lot of times I won't put traps for a long time... ...in the hopes that they'll figure there's no traps... ...and eventually stop checking... ...and eventually come across the trap. It is important to know that I know where the traps are... ...in every dungeon and castle... ...before they go in. I want to be fair about it. I know where they are. So if they go to a door and they check it for traps... ...there's one there and they succeed... ...I'm going to say, yes, there's a trap. But some people will wait until they don't check... ...and then put a trap on there. And that's not fair. I, I, I don't want to screw people like that. So I know where all traps and magical traps, and secret doors. I know where all that stuff is before they ever walk into it. So that way, it's literally ex- exploration. There could be a secret room full of treasure, and they never find it. Not going to lead them there. It depends on how well they search for things, and how well they roll. But he finally manages to get the door open. Dandy un- unlocks it, and um, untraps it. And they it, and they're able to go inside. This was clearly Barnabas's laboratory. It also appears very well clean and organized. It doesn't seem to be anything like experiments or stuff left out. Again, it looks like it was well cleaned and organized and left that way. They believe at this point Barnabas probably knew he was dying, maybe of age, maybe of sickness, of whatever. And so he took whatever he did to clean the place up. If he had any type of uh, apprentices, he probably sent them out. There was nothing that implied anybody else lived here. There were places for them, that kind of thing. Um... And then send them in. Why not read the... uh, Because it was a language that only Tobias could read. uh, And I didn't want to give them the, the secrets to the story yet. And again, remember... Every minute and every day they waste... Even though it seems like a small amount of time... Is one day closer to them not being able to save Michael. Remember, they had one year. That seems like a lot of time. But it's really not. They've already spent like four months... Going back and forth and through Corman and everything. You know, they've spent a lot of time already and they have no idea how long it's gonna take them in the sands. So they literally I reminded them that regularly throughout this storyline. I was keeping track literally on paper of how many days it took for them to do stuff. I gave them one year. If they dallied and it took more than a year, they lose. They were very, they were very, uh, very often the one who would search the most would be Dandy, but uh, Dandy was the one who very often was pushing them to hurry. Um, so where was I? Okay, so, uh, laboratory, well and clean. Um, in the center of the room on a pedestal is a purple sphere. Seems to be kind of glowing, kind of like my big D&D dice over there. Um, this itself appears to have a shield around it much like the shield that is around the tower. Tobias begins looking looking around the room as well. Searching, he very, very quickly finds a shelf that contains a set of eight spell books. He also magically sees that they're trapped and has to untrap that as well. And Dandy also finds that they're trapped. In second edition, most commonly a wizard is going to have a spell book for each level that they know. There's two ways they can do it. A First level spells would take a book. Second level spells would take two books. Three would take three, so on and so forth. As you become higher level and you learn to condense your spelling, you can use a spell called copy to copy it into a spell book, which will compact it a little bit. And then you would a, a lot of big mages for spells they created or specialty mages uh, will have a book for each spell that they create. So they'll have a selection of their spell books, all the spells they've learned. But spells they create, they'll have one for first, one for second, one for third. Doesn't mean that there's five, in, there could be five and one, one and another, three and another. But a lot of times, if you're out traveling in Dungeons and Dragons, this is how I do it, If you, you may find a spell book, and a mage has the potential to open that spell book and try to learn the spells inside of it. Um, sometimes they may be able to learn some of them, sometimes they can't. Um, so, a lot of times, if you find a spell book, it may have three third-level spells in it. Or it may have one-fifth-level spell in it. If this is someone who, it's a spell book of a named person. And they may not know the person, but they find a spell book, and it'll be, you know, like, I'm going to use a typical D&D name, Mordenkainen's spellbook. That's a big name. They're not going to find that. But if I Mordan spellbook, like this is the book of his fifth level spells. There's six spells in here. And these are nobody else has these. These are hardly anybody has these spells kind of thing. Usually for me it's spells I create. But then a generic mage, they may find a spell with a book with several spells in it. And they'll have a book okay, this one has two first level, two second level, two third level. Or two-third, two-fourth, two-fifth. It'll usually be in a sequence kind of a thing. That's kind of how I did mine. So I would give out books and things like that. Morgan Kanan. If you look in the player's handbook, you're going to find spells with certain names in front of them. Uh, Morgan Canaan's Faithful Hound is one of them. These are some of the original big wizards created in Dungeons & Dragons way back when it first got started. Um, by Gary Gygax and those folks who played on the original Dungeons and Dragons world, which was named Greyhawk. Uh, some of them came after, but the big ones are going to be on there. Um, Elminster is the big mage from uh, Forgotten Realms, and you'll see stuff like that in there. But some of some of the big original ones, Morden Kanan is one. Big B is another. Tasha. Is another one. So to- actually, they just came out with a fifth edition book called uh, Taldr- Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, which has a whole bunch of specialty spells and magic artifacts created by her, and uh, her thoughts and stuff on some of the other big mages. It's it's the one book I want to get a hold of of all the other optional hardcover books, it's the one I want to get the most. Um, Because I've never seen anything with a lot of stuff about Tasha. One of my favorite spells is a relatively low level, and it's called Tasha's Uncontrollable Hideous Laughter. Literally, you cast it on someone, and they can't stop laughing. It's potential, if you're strong enough, to make them laugh to death. It's a great spell. Um, Melf is another one. M-E-L-F with a Frank at the end, Melf. Melf's me- Meteors, Melf's Acid Arrow, a very common spell to be taken by Wizards, because it's pretty damaging at a relatively early level. Uh, Xanther, fami- I'm not familiar with the Xanther, no. Bigby is the, Bigby, Elminster, Canaan, Tasha, uh, and that other one I just mentioned that I've already forgotten, <laughs> are probably the big five that I'm used to seeing, at least in the traditional second edition, you know. There are other big mages, but many of their spells aren't in the player's handbook kind of thing. And I haven't checked. They may not even be in this one. I'm assuming they are. Bigby has a set of spells that are, are hands. A big hand appears. So it will be Grasping Hand, Bigby's Fist, and each each level spell that gets higher, the fist is more damaging. One becomes like a palm that won't let you walk around right? And then one is like a grab, it can grab you. One is a point that will just giant fist. So each level, the Big Beast hand spell, the next level spell is more powerful. Xanther's Guide to Everything. I've seen that book, but I'm not, that was never a spell that was in the player's handbook. It could be something new. They have added a couple new worlds since second edition, so it, it could be part of that. Alright, I'm going to continue here because I'm, I'm going off on tangents about DD and I love talking about it. Okay. <laughs> so we've only got a little less than an hour to go. And I still have some important things I want to achieve. Especially stairs. That's a hint for something that's coming that's not important, but funny. Just remember that. Stairs. So again, there's this glowing thing. They find the spell books. Clearly, once they've got those untapped, they're taking those back. As much as Tobias is a little bit drooling himself, he knows that giving these over are definitely going to help their cause with... Uh, two reasons. Going to help their cause with getting the sands, and maybe help earn a little bit of mojo for the other mages. You know, showing that they're willing to share. They find a lot of alchemy supplies that are dusty, but in good shape. Uh, Tobias does pocket a few of those that he finds in good shape, because again, Darkmoon's going to have all those. Um, let's see. Oh, I'm so sorry. I misled you. There was the eight books and they were trapped. Once they found the eight books, they were all duds. Searching the room for secret rooms underneath a, uh, a stone, underneath a very big, comfy chair, is his real spell books and an incredibly magical staff, the artifact that they've come to get. Tobias can pick it up and see, can see that Barnabas's staff is no slouch. This is a pretty powerful staff. Just a minor magic cast on it tells him how powerful it is. He's like, I would need days, if not weeks, of studying to be even begin unlocking what this thing can do. No wonder, uh, as powerful as it is that Darkmoor was able to sense it with his other stuff and why he would want it. They also decide that Tobias asks, says that it might be good to see if they can get this shield thing down. Because obviously he thinks that the purple sphere is what's controlling the shield so he wants some time to investigate that well they hate to waste time they give him and it takes him a good hour to figure out how it works there's a runic thing on the pedestal um, and the runic thing seems to control because the, the the sphere that protects it is on the, the table so it's it's a big pedestal with runes around it and then in the middle of it is the orb with the shield around it so turning the runes and like a the word I'm looking for. Um, them dice things that you flippy around. I forget. You know the dice cubes things. Something like that. We got to turn them in certain to unlock it. He manages to turn it off. The pedestal, the spear, then lowers into it and becomes almost like a part of it. Darsh, with his strength, is able to lift the pedestal into the uh, into the air and into the chest. of holding, though, it's a very tight fit. Um, but they decide to take it back as well. Once they do that, the shield around the tower drops as well as the door, the front door that was illusion and hidden partially by that same spell, becomes visible and they're able to see it on the inside as well and they find a way out. So they don't have to go all the way back through the tunnels to leave. Again, it took them a while to do that, but they do manage to leave and their quest was successful. I want to point out that this quest was not meant to be an overwhelmingly difficult or challenging part of the storyline. It was literally a test. Darkmoor wanted to see if they could get in there and do what he needed. Um, At the same time, it benefits Darkmoor, it benefits them, but it was also a way to burn some time. It was a way to make them have to use more of that year than they wanted to. I wanted to. wasn't trying to use up their year, but I did want to make it challenging. So I had beats that took periods of time. They get back to their boat as the sun is starting to go down at this point and they try to get back, they want to get back as quickly as they can before night in case there's another hydra in the water. Uh, I will let you know that there was not. I wanted them to be stressed near the end. That is correct. I want it to be challenging, but I want it to be doable. I never aim for them to fail. Ever. Unless it precedes part of the story where failing is actually what helps them progress. That's different, but I never aim for them to die or fail the whole quest line. Let me me rephrase that. Some tests you have to fail to progress the story. So they didn't find any treasure in there. If he had more magic items and stuff, Uh, as they're making their way back to Darkmoor Castle over the next few days, because they do get back fine, spend the night at the inn and then start making their way back, Tobias does start reading through the journal and able to tell a bit more of the information of what they found. Barnabas, uh, actually a bit of a turd, um, Uh, was actually a dark mage um, and had spent most of his life trying to make the staff that was end up being made. But the time of effort and stuff he put into it um, was enough that his health was failing at the end, and he didn't want it to end up in the hands of others. It was his prize. Not powerful. Did not know how to become a lich, so he was not that kind of a thing. So he sent all of his apprentices out. Sent them to leave. And let them take what magic items and stuff were within the castle, things that he considered a pittance at that point, and sent them out without telling them that he was coming to death. So they didn't realize that. Sent them on little quests and stuff. So as they are bumbling out, he puts the shield up. They can't get back in either. He then spends the next time over doing the Hydra Cave and getting that all made after they're gone, as his life is failing, and he puts himself down to death. Now, because time is irrelevant in merged worlds, because it really is in times and periods. He has no idea how long ago this was. It's dated in a time form from the world it came from that makes means nothing to Tobias. So it could have been a year ago, it could have been 50 years ago. Hey, Michael, I'm going back to the beginning. Alright, I hope you like it. Let me know. Throw something in the comments. Let me know what you thought. I'd love to hear it. And, uh, but he's able to read the tale over the next couple of days and sleeping in the inns on their way back home. But they are we're successful in their quest, and they return back to Darkmoor Castle. Oh good, we have 45 minutes. It's time to get into the meat of the story. Delicious. If I was Darsh, I'd say the meat pie. I'm still kind of confused about the merge part. Uh, I'm definitely going to have a whole episode dedicated to that on Behind the Dice. The merge is its own conundrum. Uh, and I try to explain as much as I can without giving away story parts. That's what kind of makes it hard. So it takes them again another three days to return back to the kingdom of Darkmoor. And when they return, they are surprised to find that the city is decorated for a celebration. It turns out that they they get there in the morning. They travel all night the last night. They get there to find out that the next day is King Thomas' birthday. Arriving at the gate, they find some guards who are waiting to see if they return. And they are taken to Tinkertork. Who is pleased to see them and that they survived. Asks for some information. He says they're successful. He says, excellent. Follow me and takes them back to the castle tower thing. Which is also very decorated. Very busy. A lot of people bustling around. They're taken into that room they're always taken into, and they wait for a little while, and King Thomas arrives. With Tinker Torque. Damon's not there. He's busy preparing for the the, the whatever's going on. King asks for all the information. They tell the story, and as they do, they also pull out the giant stone thing. They hand over the artifact. They give all the spell books. He's very, very excited to see that staff. But he's very intrigued by the purple ball thing, the thing that caused the shield. He's like he did not realize that there was something of that power in there as well, and is quite flattered that they brought it to him. He says that uh, if he can learn from it, he may be able to use it in some type of way to protect the castle and even the the city in times of danger. So this could be very beneficial to him as a, you know an overseer and protector of the people. So he thanks them for that. And the spell books, again, always every mage greedy to get their hands on some new spell books is excited to see those. Um, he also says that, of course, he's a man of his word. And that he will now help, or that because they have done what he's asked, he will help them enter the sands. But not for a couple days. You see, it's his birthday tomorrow, it will take many, many hours of preparation. To do what needs to be done to send them into the sands and with the party tomorrow, he unfortunately will not be able to do so until the day after. But they are his guests and are invited to also attend the festivities and now have the freedom. They can still stay there in the castle, but now have the freedom of the castle and the kingdom uh, at their disposal should they want to go around shop and do things like that. Because... That's something fun for PCs to do. They have a day that they can burn, going around the town and looking to find things. You know, maybe a fancy weapon, something cool, to, uh, something they want to take back and de- uh, decorate Serenity with. A cool tapestry, a cool rug. Sometimes, you know, like the rugs and stuff they found in that thing, they'll roll them up, throw them in the chest of holding, take them home, and then decorate Serenity with them or put them in the temple. They'll use these things as not just "I found this rug, I'ma sell it to get the money." They have a place to put this stuff. But sometimes they're looking for things. Uh, Artemis has a kid. She might try to find some toys. You know, some little things to take home to the guy. Uh, People have love interests. You know, Danny might find something she'd like to give Michael when they save his life, hopefully. Who knows? But they're like, okay, well, we understand. There's not much we can do. Again, we're going to have to rest of the day. They have to rest. The next day is the birthday. There'll be celebrations all day with a huge ball being held in the main area of the thing, which they are attended to tomorrow night. So they have the rest of the day. They rest a few hours because they traveled mostly through the night. But then they have the rest of this day to kind of bumble around and hang out and do things. Charles, uh, wait if Boromis, is that his name, knew he would die and set up the Barnabas to keep others out of his tower, why did he add the entrance with the Hydra? Did he want someone to get in? For a story point of view there has to be a way for the characters to get in. Um... I would say that that was his way in and out. Himself, because the Hydra wouldn't attack him, it was in spell. It was his way in and out, because preparing this castle and the Hydra and all that stuff took time. It wasn't overnight. He couldn't do it while all the apprentices were there. Some of those apprentices, I mean, if if, if you're a turd mage, most of your apprentices are going to be turd mages as well. Not a lot of good people hanging out with evil wizards. So knowing what's in there, they may be trying to get back in over time. He may need a way in and out himself. So a way like that, let's be honest, the average mage is not going to make it through most of those tests. None of his apprentices were probably strong enough to unlock the wizard's door, but he would need a way in and out. But if he dropped the shield, there's the chance someone else could get in. That would be my thought process. Evil trusts no one. So, um, where was I? Tomorrow's birthday, yes. So invites them to the ball, invites them to the festivity. There'll be events throughout the day. There'll be some like tournament type kind of stuff. He's not really into that, but he does have a kingdom, so he's things for the magic show, fireworks, all that kind of stuff. They're given their they're still their rooms have been held for them, so they're given back their room and they're given the freedom of the castle. Uh, at this point, they are his guests. Uh, so there are several things that happen with the characters over the next rest of the day. Artemis advised me that she wanted to go to the temple, of course, and speak with Damon. She's never really had this opportunity to speak to him alone and apologize for what happened the first time they came through here. You know, clubbing him over the head and stealing the magic artifact that he had been sworn to protect. You can understand that. Um, the characters also wanted to do some shopping, looking around. Uh, Darshan Mercy wanted to chat a little bit with Tinker Torque, find out about, you know, how military stuff works in this area. Are there other threats in the area that they would have to be concerned about. There's a lot of meeting and learning about Darkmoor itself. But one of the first things that happened, as Artemis was settling in her things and she was about to leave, there was a knock on her door. So she opened it. And was genuinely surprised to find Ulrich standing there. So often Ulrich just shows up at Artemis' bedroom. So, um, Artemis, as we know, is the keeper of the Chest of Holding. That's one of her jobs. She goes on to the Chest of Holding. So, in the Chest of Holding, all of them have extra supplies. Spare weapons, spare armor, spare clothing, things that they would do. And most of them have coins and such. So, if they they carry a little bit on them, but they're pretty wealthy. So, they're... No, there wasn't anything bigger, I promise. Uh, So, they carry coins on them, but they bring a lot more treasure than they carry. Because you never know what you're going to need, right? And they're people of wealth. Um, and so, all of them have spare money down there. And Ulrich asks if he can, uh, if it's okay there if he goes in the chest of holding and gets out some of his stuff. Because if there's going to be a ball, a ball thing, he wants to get out. They all have some relatively nicer clothing and he wants to go down and get some of his stuff. So he goes in and gets his stuff. It's rare that uh, Ulrich had an opportunity to chat with just Artemis, and I was giving them a role play moment because it's almost always Mercy and Ulrich. And I wanted, I try to have everybody, you'll be friends with everybody. I say that nothing matters, but everything matters. I am a dungeon master, But you understand asking me questions for things that I've not told you, there's no way I'm going to then tell you. And that means there could be nothing, and I'm being mysterious because I want you to always worry much like playing press the button if I always act suspicious it's sometimes harder to tell when I'm really being suspicious I'm a jerk okay so um, Artemis does go and speaks with Damon apologizes, Damon says he understands uh, she was, her quest was something that she was you know trying to do, she was trying to fight an evil and by defeating the evil if you'll remember, the biggest threat to the kingdom in the area was also taken out um, and they returned it, and so they, st- they borrowed it and left the castle a little weak- empty for a while, and embarrassed him that his defenses weren't enough to stop, you know, some tribals and a kender. <laughs> Michael Nardus, but uh, you know, he he has assured her that issue's been resolved, but he doesn't go into more detail. In other words, that thing's way more protected now. Um, it's the only artifact in the kingdom that's not locked up in the in the tower because it's a magic item that only clerics can use. So in an emergency, it needs to be where the cleric can get to it. Um, Damon cannot get into the I guess you could say vault that is locked by Darkmoor. If Darkmoor is unconscious or dead, he can't get to any of that stuff. So, you know, he still needs to have a way to get a hold of the powerful cleric item. But they talk and they talk about Temple stuff. Uh, He asks what happened to the rest of the party. They got a little bit of a bridge story. Talks about young uh, 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 Tevin who went through and talks about Draven and Tevin's return, and the fact that they have a uh, kid and all that stuff, and he's pleasantly surprised and genuinely wishes them well. Uh, Chase says, I'm brand new to D&D, and this is the best series I've ever seen, especially given how you explain things. Just wanted to say cheers. Well, thank you, Chase. I appreciate that. And welcome to Dungeons & Dragons. It's a ton of fun, which for the record, my nickname in high school, Uh, (laughs) I, I I will beat a horse to death. A dead horse. I won't hurt a horse but I'll, I'll kill a joke over and over again. Uh, but thank you for coming by. I appreciate that. And thank you for the compliment. I, I appreciate that. I, I, I take pride. I always wanted to be a writer, and I learned that I'm a storyteller. Different things, but along the same vein. Got here for your Minecraft uh, lives and then found this. Excellent one. Well, glad you enjoyed the Minecraft stuff as well. Uh, if you weren't here earlier, and I should throw that to anybody who's here now, um, in just a couple of weeks, I'll be stepping down uh, from my full-time job to a part-time position so that I will be increasing the amount of time and such that I'll be able to put into the channel. So there's going to be a lot more streams, a lot more content, um, new types of video series I want to come out that aren't, that are pre-recorded, you know, like the Behind the Dice Dungeons Dragons tutorial that I put the first episode out of this week. Um, there's going to be more of that stuff in a couple of weeks once my new schedule kicks in, uh, so I'm excited to be able to bring new stuff to everybody. So uh, keep an eye out for that, because I'll be asking for a lot of feedback on some of the new things I'll be doing, what people like, what they don't like. That way I can tailor it to make sure I'm putting out content people enjoy. So... Um, Feedback like this from Chase, exactly what we're looking for. Will I have a different job? No, I'll be doing the exact same position. I'll still get yelled at just for less hours in a day. Same position, same pay. Just means I'll get a little bit less vacation time. I'll get a little less sick time because I'm working less. But that works out because now if I want to take a day off, I've got to use less hours. It still works out the same. And if there's a week where I'm, you know, around Christmas, or there's a week where maybe the channel's not doing as well one month, I can sign up. To work more hours, should I need to take a little time off streaming if finances become an issue. But things are going well. Hopefully, the channel continues to grow and that won't become uh, a situation. But it's there if I need it. There is a fallback. All right. But I appreciate that. And thank you, Chase. I'm excited as well. All right. Let's get delicious. The next day comes and everyone. Gets to go out and enjoy things and the events. And Darsh is eating lots of what would be fair foods, you know, carnival foods and stuff. Everybody's enjoying the events. And even Dandy, who, uh, you know, is a little bit more sullen than normal, uh, manages to find a lot of fun and interesting things to do there. I still get all the health benefits. That was the biggest question I asked, yes. I, I As long as I work between this many hours, I don't go less than that, I still get all the medical benefits that I have. So, yes, I didn't lose any of that. There were a few pies that he got a hold of. Yes, I'm sure there was. Imagine if there had been a pie-eating competition. I always meant to have one and never got to. I always wanted to see Darsk into a pie-eating competition and then just get stomped by someone you'd least expect it from. Um, so, yeah. I've never got to do that. It's not in the story. Might eventually, but I never actually got to live through that. But I always wanted to do that. The day goes through. It's fun. It's adventures. They see, you know, the, the king's up on a balcony. He gives a speech to the people. He's out talking to people. People are just enjoying it. It's a big event carnival games, all that kind of stuff. Dandy is amazing people with her knife throwing because she's really good at that and doing lots of stuff. So, um, later that evening, of course, uh, there's a big feast inside the temple. Not everybody in the city gets to come to that, but um, from the towns and stuff, mayors nobles, maybe even more barons that are now under Darkmoor's uh, land, because, you know, that happens. I own this, but I'm going to put this person in part of charge of this area, and, the, you know, that happens. So these people of rank and such, or people striving for rank, come in. Yes, Dandy is a rogue, Darsh is a fighter, Mercy is a fighter, Artemis is a cleric. Uh, usually, when I have people play their first characters, I make them choose a basic class, nothing specialty. I want them to learn the basics, and then we'll roll something better, but I almost every situation, they fall in love with those characters and don't want to. So, everybody then gets out of their traveling around, you because know, they have their regular clothes, and they go put on their fancy stuff. Artemis always has a fancy set of robes that shows off her rank and such, because they may travel one day to a city where there's a big temple, and she's got to go in show and she's someone of rank herself. Mercy, being a noble, basically a queen at this point, she doesn't wear dresses and stuff, but she's got a very nice clothing that she'll put on in case she has to speak to a mayor or something. Darsh always has a spare nice clothes, because again, same situation, he's working out trade deals and things, and Dandy wears right, her, her, she has bright, colorful stuff she likes to wear on fancy occasions. Sometimes she has a fancy dress that she wears, and oh, oh, they are bright and clashing colors. Uh, Kenders downside. But they all get ready, and Mercy's the first one ready, meets with Artemis, um, and they're chatting, it turns out Darsh and Dandy have already left, So they make their way down to the party. I have some reading. We're going to go over here. Turtle says, hi, Patches. The main chamber of the keep is beautifully decorated. Men dressed in their finest suits and armor and women in beautiful gowns mingle about the room while others dance to the music provided by the orchestra. When I say you, I'm talking to mercy in this situation. Because Mercy was first. And I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Sometimes in this situation I say you, I'm talking to someone specific. Uh, let's see. You see Darsh near the buffet table, sampling the delicious foods provided. He is too focused on the chicken wings to notice the looks and space the other people are giving him. Dandy is making her way throughout the crowd, introducing herself and shaking people's hands. You share a glance with Artemis, knowing you'll have to check her pouches in the morning. You also make your way into the crowd. People greet you warming, warmingly, and everyone always bowing heavily to Artemis. Very fancy robes. You come across Damon, Tobias, and Tinkertork. Then they make their way over to you. Uh, both Mage and Cleric are dressed in fine robes, be their station, and Tinkertork in his military best. You, may sm- you make small talk for a few moments, discussing the area and its history. Suddenly, Artemis gets a strange smile on her face. Which makes Mercy ner- nervous. She nudges Mercy and nods back t- backwards towards the stairs. Turning, you all see Ulrich entering the room. He's dressed in new fine leather, or fine clothes of dark blues and black, um, black and blue being uh, Mercy's official colors. And he's dressed in dark blues and black, high uh, like fancy, like almost like leathers type shirts um, with silver like in linings and stuff. Very fancy Smancy clothes. Uh, he has a silver belt on with a new buckle. He went and got all new clothes. His hair is finely groomed and you are surprised to see that he's clean shaven. He's always had like a big goatee or beard at some point. Um, so you've never seen Ulrich dressed up before and in his finery you all can't help but notice how attractive he is. He's a far cry from the young squire you first met all those years ago. Ulrich approaches your group with a smile on his lips. He bows low to you all, uh, his noble heritage apparent in his grace and bearing. Good evening, my lady, he says to Mercy. Now this is one of those moments where I like to put the decision in the player's hands. Where things are going to move forward. I don't like to force things. It's called railroading, and I don't like that. But in that moment, I gave Mercy, what would you say in this situation? You have to understand that Mercy is an amazing warrior. She's a great noble queen. She's a great leader. And she is a schmuck at stuff like this. And as they're standing near the bottom of the stairs as Ulrich comes down, I said, what do you say right now? Because I wanted her first instinct. I didn't want to give her time to think about it. I'm like, what does Mercy say right now? And she was frustrated. She didn't know what to say. I'd just thrown this at her, and she wasn't expecting that. And she looks at Ulrich, and she she goes, I like stairs. Swear to you! What she said was, I like stairs. She wanted to compliment the way he looked, but she didn't want to seem too funky. And so him standing there at the bottom of the stairs, she said, I like stairs. And myself and the other young lady who played Darsh and Artemis, we just cracked up. And the young lady who played Mercy was just embarrassed. She was shy. She wasn't expecting this. She wasn't expecting a situation like this to pop up. Um, and I, like, stares became a running gag from this point on. Whenever somebody's in a moment and they're they're having what we call a dumb moment, it's like it's like, you're going to do this and we're going to fight. Jim, what are you doing? I like stairs. Good job, Jim. And it's just one of those things. I, Jim, I'm not picking on you. I'm just using that. But it's one of those situations, like, all right, I'm going to go up on this thing. And we're going to do this. Uh, Brock, what are you doing? I like stairs. Excellent, Brock. Keep up with it. It's just, it's one of those things where uh, you're like, you know, smash things. It's just one of those moments where you're on instinct and you don't know what to say. And I loved putting Mercy in those situations because Artemis does a lot of the fancy talk. Mercy does a lot of the leading. She can inspire people and things of that nature. But she is a schmuck at this stuff. And Ulrich looks at her and kind of gets a smile and goes, I also like stairs. And she's like, you, you look you look really nice too. He's like, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And it was just a, a, an odd moment. I like stairs. Very soon after that, King Thomas arrives and the crowd breaks into an applause. The music stops. The king speaks for a few moments, thanking everyone for coming and for all of the birthday wishes and gifts that he's received. He, recur- he encourages everyone to enjoy themselves this evening, to eat, drink, and dance. Everything is being provided by the kingdom. And uh, what else? And to enjoy themselves. And then the party kind of kicks back in. McCall we'll oh, I Like Stairs is a running gag. There are eight or ten, and many of them I breezed over, because they were funny in the moment, and if you were there, me telling it afterwards doesn't have the same effect. Wagaga Gaga being my other favorite one. I could, if I do that, it cracks them up every time. But I Like Stairs, I thought, was a good one that I wanted to throw in there. Yep, that was Buffy. They hang out, they chat a little bit, there's talking, the music is playing, and Ulrich steps up and asks Mercy to dance. Mercy, agreeing, takes her arm. Mercy knows how to dance. She was raised in a noble household herself. She's no slouch. She may not be good at the talking parts, but she knows how to do the basics. And they step out on the floor and they dance. Nothing squishy happens, nothing emotional. They just polite conversation. It was just meant to be a polite thing. And Artemis at one point is out dancing with Tobias. And while they're dancing, Mercy gets a big smile on her face when she notices that Darsh is dancing with Dandy. And he's just dancing around with swinging extra fast and her feet are flying and she's just giggling like crazy. And everybody's just kind of applauding at how, how funny it looks that Darsh is on the dance floor. Because Darsh not a dancer, so he's just up there swinging Dandy around like he's trying to dance. And her feet are just, and every time she tries to gain her her balance, he swings around wildly to keep her off balance, and she's just giggling madly at the whole situation. And everybody's laughing, they find it funny, and it's part of the celebration. The night is a wonderful escape from all you've been through. By the time you return to your rooms, you're all exhausted, or in Darsha's situation, exhausted and stuffed. You sleep well, forgetting just for, uh, for just a night, all the dangers left before you. So that was a little interlude of role-playing opportunity. They got to talk to the NPCs. It was just supposed to be a, hey, we're not fighting something. We're not solving a puzzle. Here's us in this situation getting to be us for once. And I try to do that in the stories when I have that opportunity, whether it's just going around and go, I want to go to the shop and see what they have to sell and having cool haggling with the thing. I want them to have those regular experiences. These are people that not every moment is in danger. And so I try to work that in whenever possible. A lot of that stuff I breeze over in the story because I'm like, they went shopping for the day. But that was four hours of us role-playing, them going through and haggling and all that kind of stuff. So they did lose some time, but they didn't have any choice. They had to wait either way. So why not enjoy themselves where they could? Because a lot of their life, especially for poor Dandy, is very stressful right now. um, And to take a moment out was a nice break for them. The next morning, they awaken, get dressed, and pack up their gear. Um, once again, there Matt is waiting for them and takes them down to uh, the regular room where they're given a breakfast. There's also many of the supplies that they'd requested. They provided that list to Tinker Torque previously, uh, and many supplies, including some things that uh, Tobias had asked for specifically. Um, oh, Kitty. <laughs> Buffy's walking on the keyboard. Sweetie, come in, Come here, baby. Hang on. Hold on. I love you. I just can't have you walking on the keyboard. Um, she does not like being picked up. She'll hop up on my belly like Patches will and let me cuddle her, but she has to be the one to initiate it, or she's not happy. Patches I can pick up, and she'll just let me hold her. Uh, Midnight doesn't like being held in any situation. Just Cat update. Um, the apprentice lets him know that uh, King Thomas is, uh, has been preparing Uh, And we'll send for them when it is time. They spend several hours sitting there. And they knew this was going to take a while. They're warned. He's going to be preparing for it for a big part of the day. But they sit there really just sitting and waiting. Don't you be playing with the wires? Good lord. Um, Okay. Finally, once again, Matt returns and advises them that the king is now ready. They leave out of the room and they follow him to the great stairs and begin going further up than they've ever been. They pass by multiple doors and rooms, and at one point you can hear Tobias gasping and mumbling about too many stairs. Tobias hates stairs. It, again, another running gag. As a mage, he travels a lot, but he always gets winded, because he's a book nerd, you know, that's just a thing. Finally, after what feels like an eternity, you reach the top of the stairs, well, Matt knocks on the door, and after a moment it opens, revealing Tinker Tork. He ushers you inside, and Matt bows and returns below. Inside, you find yourself inside the Darkmoor family laboratory. It is huge, and even Tobias seems amazed. Multiple tables all over the place with bubbling beakers and tubes, things in different arrays, shelves line the walls from roof to ceiling, books bound in different types of leathers and other mysterious things. You see some kind of uh, birdbath looking water bowl in one corner that seems to be bubbling with a black liquid inside. And again, the shelves are everywhere. The center of the room is a wide open area, rounded. So the, the it's round and then it steps down and there's a layer and then you get stepped down to the flat center, which is still a big, big area. Um, I, where King Thomas is currently standing. Behind him on the far wall is another door. Around this door our runes of protection. Even from as far away as you are, and even though you're not mages, you all can feel the power radiating from behind that door. That is the vault. Come, my friends, says King Thomas. It is time. They walk down to the center area with him. And looking on the ground, they can see that there are etchings and drawings on the ground. Tobias is very intent on looking at them, although he seems to be nodding as if he's familiar with many of these things. King Thomas takes a moment to remind them that once you go inside, the effects of aging is untold. You could be affected in different ways. He also says that within the sands, within the library itself, are the librarians, entities that are there to assist. Um, They may be able to help them. Advise that while you're you're entering the sands here, if you manage to leave, he has no idea where you'll come out. It's not guaranteed you'll come out in this location. He also advises them that they have one chance. He will not let them in again. If they manage to find their way out, He does not ever want to have this request made another time. And lastly, he reminds them that the sands itself is the personal realm of Kiara, goddess of time. And trespassers are not taken lightly. That to use or enter, a price or toll may be enacted. This may not be a free journey. Giving them a chance to change their mind, they all agree, no, they want to move forward with it. Nodding his head, he walks over to a table and pulls off a blanket and there is an hourglass that stands about this tall. It looks very old of a dark wood. And you can see that there are sands in it, obviously, it's an hourglass. He walks over and he sets it down on the floor next to them, in the very center. He twists a knob on the top and the top of it spins open and he reaches in and they're surprised to see that there's sands in the top end in the bottom. The sand's not falling through. He reaches in and he takes a small handful of the sand. Walking to each of them, he mutters some words and puts a little bit over their head. Darsh obviously has to, to bow over. You can imagine why this is limited. Once the thing runs out of sand, there's no way to fill it back up again. He sprinkles a bit of it on each of them and then he tells them to brace themselves. He closes the hourglass again. Says some more words of magic. Picks it up. And sets it over. King Thomas carefully picks up the hourglass and slowly turns it over. Time seems to move slower and slower as he lowers it onto the ground. Everything seems to freeze and all is still. Slowly, ever so slowly, you can see a single grain of sand... Grain of sand drop within from the top part to now the bottom it drops for what seems like an eternity until you finally see it touch the bottom of the hourglass joining the sand that lays there and the world is ripped apart you feel every bit of your existence being torn asunder and you see only bright light until finally you feel everything rushing back together then the light is gone leaving only darkness Finally, you open your eyes and you are lying on cold, smooth ground. Hello there, uh, Mahmoud. Good day. Thank you for coming by. Documentary about your cats. Make a cat video. (laughs) Um, Everyone stands up and they are automatically know that they have succeeded in entering the sands. They stand in an open circle. So an open area, 50 feet diameter. Around that circle are rows of books, bookshelves. So imagine the circle and the shelves going off in every direction. The shelves themselves are 30 feet high. Books of all sorts of colors, shapes, and sizes on them. And the shelves go off infinitely. Uh, just for, uh, Dr. Superfly says, Thanks for creating the Sky Factory tutorials. tutorials they really help. You are very welcome. Uh, the reason I said, well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> nice story, sounds interesting. Well, I appreciate that as well. I've been telling it for a very long time. Uh, hopefully you will uh, listen to it and enjoy it as well. Thank you. Goes off. I like to explain this. If you remember the scene, if you've ever seen the movie The Matrix, when they go in and all the guns come zipping up. And it's just gun racks as far as the eye can see. That's what this looks like, but bookshelves. Okay. Um, the sky is blue like a nice day, but there are no clouds, no sun, no moon or stars. There's nothing moving. The floor appears to be old tiled stone, each square perfectly symmetrical and identical to the others. And while there's no breeze or airflow, a light layer of dusty sand will occasionally shift from place to place. Bye, Terry. Have a good night. Enjoy your job if you can. And if not, hopefully it goes by quickly. Tobias explains that you are on a plane outside of time, and the first time any of them have ever left actually merged worlds since the merge. Tobias warns them again as he's warned them previously, do not touch any of the books lest you become trapped inside of it and we have no way of getting you out. He says that we must find a librarian. It's the only hope they have of finding the right book. He also says that occasionally you will come across very high-level clerics of time that have been invited here by the goddess herself. Um, but the librarians are chosen to be uh, the time goddesses' caretakers of this, the Great Library of the Sands. Sometimes... Where, who's chosen and why? No one really knows. Are they high level clerics that have reached such a point? No one seems to know. Tobias says, We will need the help of a librarian. And Dandy says, Well, how do we find one? Tobias goes, Librarian, we need your help. And I am happy to assist you, comes a voice from behind them. They all quickly spin around. You seem cool, all sub. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. <laughs> Standing there is a man, obviously. He seems slightly tall, he was six foot two. His long yellowish robes reach to the ground. Uh, his robes are the colors of what you'd expect a desert sand, which is the color of the clerics of Kiara, goddess of time. Sand colored, that's her colored robes. He has no hair at all. Uh, But he does have a kind of a Fu Manchu going on. Got that that long thing going on. Um, And while he looks like he's maybe in his 40s or so, he has a real era of someone much, much older. He speaks with like a wisdom and a depth of confidence of someone who knows a whole lot. All you have to do is ask for a librarian and they will arrive to help you. Tobias explains very quickly we have a staff named Menandra. Tobias, or the, the the librarian, nods. He goes, "We need to see. We need to re, uh, We need to find the world that it was created. The events that caused it to happen, and we need to be there when it does." He nods and says, "Follow me." And you begin walking down a row of books, looking back very quickly. The circle's no longer there. Books for infinity, straight row. In fact, you get the feeling like you're moving through this aisle at incredible distance, at incredible speeds, even though it seems like you're casually walking. Eventually, he comes to a stop. Everybody looks as he reaches up and pulls a large tome from off the shelf. Turning again, he begins to walk forward, and they're surprised to see that in front of them again is another round open area with the books, and in the middle of it is a large table. Wooden table. Old oak looking thing. Heavy chairs, but surprisingly comfortable with little butt, butt carvings for Comfy City. He takes it and he sets it on the table. Tobias tells everyone, Oh, got to go sleep. Bye. Bye. Thanks for coming by. Have a great day. Getting it for my players to create their PC's appearance in Hero Do They have them do both. Give them homework. It's fun. Tell them if they do both, uh, you'll give them a little bit of extra experience their first adventure what I did. Back in the day, if you went and bought a mini, because before you could do it online, if you bought a mini and showed up with it on the first day of d for your character, I gave you bonus experience. You didn't have to paint it, because not everybody has that skill. Um, butt carvings for comfy sitting. Oh yeah, butt carvings. Gotta have that. So, everyone begins to sit down, and Tobias thanks the librarian. As the librarian Goes to walk away. He stops and turns to Tobias uh, Tobias and says, And may I say it is good to see you again, sir. It's a pleasure having you back. And turns and walks into the books and literally fades as he walks down the the row of bookshelves. Tobias gets a grim look on his face and shakes his head like, Oh, I don't want to be doing this again. And he has everyone sit down on the table. It's It's a big table. It's not huge. They can all reach the middle. The book is sitting in the middle. Tobias says, I'm gonna go ahead and we're gonna go ahead and go inside. It will be another bit of a jar, but we will be living inside. Tobias has a backstory. Well, you'll remember both he and Lemia came in here and were trapped. That's where they kind of became a couple. She was an old lady who became young. He aged a little bit and they became a couple in here. They were gone for a month and a half, but in their time it was a couple of years. Uh, so they were in here before and they had to get find their way back out. That that happened way earlier in the story. Hello, Apache. Not yet. Treats are in a few minutes. I'm trying to get to the... This may run a little bit extra long tonight because there's a certain point I want to get to. He tells them all to brace themselves and reminds them to be very careful. If they die in here, there's no coming back for that. Everyone does as he directs and reaches in and puts his hand, their hand on the book. He says a few words and they literally feel themselves... Imagine, like, being in a toilet... ...and the water goes... ...and you're in it. It's like that. They just feel like they're swooshed... ...and they feel themselves... pulled downward into the book... ...and then thunk! They hit the hard ground... ...and the leaves go everywhere. They stand up... ...and they look around. They appear to be in a forest... ...into late fall. The trees themselves... ...look unusually bare... ...but not turning in... ...it's not quite cold enough to be winter yet... The sky is even a lightish gray, like a gloomy day. It's like it's completely overcast. And they find themselves on a bit of a hillside in what would be a large forest uh, of all this nature going off in the distance. They turn to Tobias. They're all there. And they go, where do we go? He goes, "I, I honestly don't know. I don't know what happens here. We have to find it. But wherever we are, we're close. We're close to a key part of this story, we came here for a specific reason the librarian gave us what we needed to go to that tail, if you will so not knowing what else to do they proceed to start walking they pick a random direction and they're like, what if we're going the wrong direction he goes, I don't think that's going to be an issue and they start walking a direction and they travel for a distance most of the day goes on and they're just traveling through forest nothing seems hilly you know, not mountainous, but it's hilly um, and as they're traveling, they're going to see themselves going a little bit... They feel like they're, they're inclining. They're going a bit higher. Not, not by a lot, but as they're going up and down hills, it seems to be going up a little bit high each time. Night comes, and they camp. They set a small fire. Small one. They don't know where they are. They try to keep it bare, minimum. They're in a mostly empty forest. A lot of dry leaves, so kindling is not a problem. But they do try to be careful. The night passes without incident. And the next day, they continue on. They travel again for about half the day. Hey, baby. Not yet. For about half the day. And they can hear the sounds ahead of them, what sounds like rushing water. You can't have my drink. You're too young to drink. You know this. No alcohol for you. Um, <laughs> but they, uh... They travel. They hear water. They start making their way towards it. Oh, Buffy's got, a, Buffy's got a sore eye today. She's licking it. I'll put some medicine on in a few minutes, sweetie. Um... And they make their way towards the water. Like We'll get fill up our canteens and such while we can. Plus, water sometimes has a habit of leading to civilization. People live near water. The one thing that they have noticed is they haven't seen any animals. And there haven't been any birds chirping. It seems very, very unusually quiet. But the water's the first real sound they hear. Other than wind, I mean, there's weather and stuff. You know, regular. It's not raining or anything. But they make their way... Uh, Close to the water, and as they get to the water, they decide to start continuing on. Baby, you're walking on my keyboard again. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that, okay? Sorry. For those of you listening on the audio version, I have three very beautiful little kitties uh, who get treats very soon from now, and they know that, so they're bugging me. (laughs) So, uh, as they're making their way along the river, from up ahead of them, they hear voices calling out almost as if in distress. It's the first thing of any type of civilization that they've seen. So they're like, okay. They start hurrying forward. Again, being careful, quiet, cautiously. They move forward. The river itself is is not super wide, maybe 10 or 12 feet. Uh, Relatively quick moving, but doesn't appear to be too uh, deep. And as they come to what appears to be like a little waterfall, like five or six feet, not real big. And then the water continues on. As they get there and they're looking kind of down, they can see a group of what appears to be six or eight humans. Poorly dressed, a couple children, one woman carrying a, or one man carrying a small child, trying to wade across the water. And they, the people in front appear to be trying to hurry the people in the back. They stop and they watch for a moment and they're like, okay, they seem to be in a hurry. And then they see why. As the dead begin to walk out of the trees... Our heroes see... Ten to twelve... Clearly undead zombies... Shuffling towards the water... Going after the people. Well... They can't have that now, can they? Without hesitation... They rush forward to help the people in the water. As they get close... The zombies are also now in the water moving forward. And one woman has fallen and actually gone a bit downstream and has actually washed closer to the zombies. The man who is next to her has a child and you can see he wants to go help her, but he can't let go of the child and has to try to continue on. The water and current being very fast, but just not really deep. The woman stands up and is trying to make her way across, but the zombies are, are gaining in steam. They seem to be less affected, by the way. Our group manages to reach the shore as the first humans do and they're shocked to see living people there. And immediately Artemis raises her hands and starts casting Turn Undead. Which is effective, although not quite as effective as normal. But it does have an effect on the undead. At least the closest ones. But several a little bit down the river close to the woman are too far away. Darsh doesn't hesitate. He immediately uses his rush powers to boost forward into the water. Being as tall as he is, the water is even more shallow to him. He's going to be less knocked over, especially with his weight. He goes charging in and still slips and falls anyways, but he gets back up and keeps going. And he manages to get to the woman at the same time as a zombie and literally just cleaves the thing in half. Darsh is a big guy. Grabbing the woman under his arm, he starts rushing back through the water. Again, he spends more time around water than anybody. He's pretty sure-footed, but he does lose some balance with the rush boots. Making his way back to the shore... Artemis has turned the group of undead... There doesn't appear anymore, more... And they're now wandering off confused. If the woman dying causes the man to uh, create Menander Them interfering would negate the entire reason they were there. Hm, very possible. They have to be very careful, don't they? We have discussed this. They have to be careful. Because they can definitely change the story. But they can't change time. They get one stab at this. Because while they're in there... Their Menandra is with them. That year is still going on. Time itself, whether they age fast or slow, slower, affected in some strange way, time is still for Menandra going from day to day. They're living 24 hours in this book. Their year continues. Even if they had found a way to go back in time... That doesn't make the time of Menandra to go back. It's still spent that many times every day. A bit of that magic that could get Michael—that's protecting Michael's soul—is dwindling. The people are shocked to see this group of heroes. They seem particularly shocked to see Artemis, and some would say overjoyed to see Artemis. People, the heroes and the other people who've made are now trying to help the people through the water, and as Darsh comes bumbling through the water with this lady under his arm, coughing and sputtering, everybody just stops and stares, and then every single person drops to their knees and bows to Darsh, putting their their heads on the ground, and they're mumbling, and they. They were speaking common. They could understand. But now they're just mumbling and they don't know what's being said. And is like, you're welcome. Here's your lady back. Sets her down. She hits the knees as well. Everybody's looking like, well, this is awesome, but we need to get out of here before those guys get unzombied or uh, uh, unturned. And he says, you guys need to get up. We've got to go. And of course, as soon as he says that, they quickly get to their feet and begin thanking them. And thanking, using words like "great one," thank you, great one. We are honored. Thank you so much. And Darsh not comfortable, <laughs> unlike Turtle, not comfortable with that. Type of, yeah, it's all it's good. We're okay. We're fine. One of the men who appears to be kind of leader of the group again stepping up thanks him for saving his wife. He's of the kid. That's why he was in the back. Leader in the back. And. Then turns to Artemis and thanks her as well. My lady, we cannot tell you how excited and honored we are to see you here alive. And in the company of a keeper. It's more than we could have ever prayed for. Thank you for help saving us. Party's like, you're welcome. This is a different world. They don't know what's going on here. But they don't want to affect the story too much. So they got to play dumb. It was our pleasure. We're also traveling this edition. Heard your cries of distress. And we are so glad to, uh, so glad to help where we could. Like we, we are blessed just by your presence. We, we, we were, we've been fleeing from them for days. <sighs> we're just trying to get up to the top of the hills. It's our only chance of, of escape. They're not sure what's going on, and but they're like, yes, we thought the same, and we were headed the same direction. Let us travel together. And they're like, oh, yes, please. Like, kind of that look like, oh, you didn't have a choice. We weren't leaving you. And they start going up again, and as they're traveling again, everyone seems honored that Artemis is there. But everyone is just... They're looking at Darshleski a dragon, or a unicorn, or a fairy. They're looking at him like mystical wonder. It's making Darsh very creeped out. Dandy's giggling, and he doesn't like that that much. They don't seem to know what Dandy is, and at first they think it's Artemis' child. They explain that, no, she's a kender, and they're confused, we've not heard of that. And she goes, like a young elf, yes, she's with us. I'm like, oh, okay, cool, that makes sense. Again, seeing they're also shocked to see a wizard here. But not as shocked as to see Artemis. And then Ulrich and Mercy are just people with weapons. They're just happy to have them. You know, that kind of thing. Um, But these are all humans. So they're like, yes, we we must hurry. We must flee up the hills. We must get higher. And they're like, okay, well, yes, that's where we're going to. And they travel as quickly as they can, which isn't easy when you've got people. And looking at these people are a little thin. They don't have a lot of belongings. Some of them look like they probably haven't eaten in a while. And these people are tired. Clearly not in the best of shape. Artemis, they're not ill, they're not like sick-sick. Artemis does find a few people with some minor abrasions, cuts and things of that. She does some minor heals, which again, they're like, oh, so powerful. And they continue up the hills. We wait a week or two, there you go, turtle. I apologize, I have to ignore the questions that would give away something that's coming. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I I can't answer some questions, but, you know. cliffhanger? No, not yet. We've got about 10 to 15 more minutes. We're going to run a little long today. I hope you guys aren't too mad about it. Uh, but there's a specific point I want to get to. They're making their way up to the top of the hill. And as they do, they're trying to ask questions without giving away too much away. Um, but the people just keep... you know, A lot of them are out of breath. They're traveling hard. There's not a whole lot of talking going on. And when Artemis and them pull out food to eat for like a, for like a meal type thing... They seem amazed at the amount of food. And when they are offered them food, the people are just like, please. And they, they don't tell them what the chest of holding and that barrel of pickled fish. But these people are like, oh, God, you would share this? With? Please. Mm-hmm. Artemis has a spell, by the way, that as long as she has some food and water, she can create more food and water from that. It's not good tasting food and water, but it has the nutrients that will keep you alive. But she does have to have a certain amount of food and water. Um, and over... You can't keep using the same food. You know what I mean? If I, if I have a piece of bread, I can make more out of that. I can't then the next day make more out of that same bread. I have to get another piece of bread. You know. So you, you steal your food supply would dwindle, But she can definitely stretch it out. It's a cleric spell. Relatively low level. But, in, but at her level, pretty powerful. She can make a lot of food. So she starts doing that with some of the food they had. And they're mystified. There's a woman who could just create food. Start handing food to them and such. Um, and... Every one of them, before they begin eating, walk over and take a piece of it and try to offer it to Darsh. Now, in a normal situation, Darsh would be like, well, this is how people should act. Excellent. Thank you. But he's like, no, please have your food. And the person thanks him and walks away. Next person walks up and tries to do the same thing. He has to tell every single person, no, you go ahead and eat it before they'll actually touch their food. And then when they do, they just tear into it. comes dark they prepare to set a camp they go to light a fire and people are like no don't please do not light a fire the dead will be able to see it from great distance without a thought Tobias goes there's many of them and they look at each other with a little bit of surprise he goes they're everywhere says we're heading this way direction as well but we must admit we're not from these lands and so we're not quite sure where we're going we're also just seeking safety people nod their head that makes sense He goes, you're in luck we've heard rumors that there's a safe place up in the upper hills high above in, in, in the upper mountains we're just trying to get there we don't know if it's true or not but it's the last chance we've got and they're like well then we will also go there as it sounds like that's the best thing, and we will help get you there, and they're all oh, Thank goodness. Yes, please, stay with us. They rest. Some of them want to stay stay guard, but Darsh says, no, you guys rest, we'll take it, and they're like, no, oh, okay. They don't, Darsh said it, they don't hesitate. Mercy, Darsh, Ulrich, they take turns, uh, as well as Tobias and Dandy. Artemis, gonna she's usually going to catch a nap. They don't make Artemis stand watch unless they really need it, just because they want her to be fully healed. Midnight's at the fish tank. Midnight! Don't eat the fishy. That fish tank's going on Thursday. Just letting you guys know. This will be rearranged again behind me. It's okay. He wants him, but he won't get him. <laughs> they travel for several days. Again, always looking over their shoulders, but with no sign of anything. Again, no animals not coming across any real plants. Everything appears mostly dead, if you will. The trees still look relatively alive, but there's, they're not finding nuts, or and there's no bushes of berries. It's like it's about to be winter without the cold. And they travel on, and as they travel, the, the hills now become steeper, and they're sometimes walking through valleys that are almost like hallways, if you will, with no ceiling, and they're winding going higher and higher. It's four days later when they finally come to the destination of the people they've been traveling. Up ahead, again, in one of these, there's a very sheer rock cliff face as they're getting to the higher lands at this point. And there's a crack, a break in between them, probably 8 to 10 feet wide. And as they get closer, they can see that there are defenses built there. Wooden spikes facing outwards and such. And even at the distance, Artemis, with her keen Elven eyesight, could see movement behind the 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 barricades. They start to move forward, but they go slowly. They don't know what's up there. More dead. They don't know what's going on. Darsh takes the lead. After speaking about it the night before, if they came across other people, Darsh and Mercy and them talked about it, and then they're like, Darsh, maybe you should go first. People seem to be impressed with you. Um you where Artemis is normally our golden ticket. You might be even better one this time. So Darsh is like, "Okay, that makes sense." Darsh, he's a leader as well. He's like, "Okay, I can do it." And as they approach an arrow shoots out into the ground well in front of them. Clearly not aided, a- aimed at them, but it stops Uh, they miscellaneous people. I think I gave names at the time, but they weren't that important, to be honest with you. They weren't people that I've written their names down because it wasn't uh, long-term important. So, Darsh continues to walk forward and everybody else waits. As Darsh watches, he literally can hear gasps and stuff from behind the barricades. And they start hearing clunking and things as things are slightly being dissembled, disassembled. And an opening is made, and several well-armed, well-armored people come out. And they walk forward with their weapons and shields drawn, and they come out to Darsh. And they seem to be going slow, watching him. Darsh slowly raises his hands and says, Greetings, we're looking for a place of safety. Soon as he speaks, they hit the ground. They don't let go of their weapons, but they definitely drop to a knee—not quite as far as the regular people did. They drop to a knee. Darcy's like, "Okay, everybody, get up here while you can." <laughs> people are start coming up, and then they see Artemis, and they see the group of people, and they see Tobias, and they're like, "Where did you come from?" Uh, and for the record, they were—they did know that they were traveling. Eastward, I should say that it was—I believe it was eastward. Uh, so we're—we're we're far, far from the west. We're not from these lands. We came across these people in need of assistance, uh, fleeing the dead and fleeing a group of the dead. And people nodded like, yeah, I was expecting. And like, and they said that there might be safety up here. We have escorted them. Is there a safe place for us? And they're like, yes, please. You are welcome. All of you, come inside. Which they're very happy about, but they're also a little shocked. No real questions beyond that. No why are you here? Are you good I mean obviously it's a good cleric and darsh is whatever they think darsh is. But you know, there's no real questions. Like, are you armed? What is your intentions here? They're like, yes, please get inside. And everyone comes through. One of the people that they're with, one of the people they saved, asks, Is this place safe? Have we found a safe place. One of the guards goes, safe as any place in this wretched world. This land is known as Panamore. The main encampment is several hours that direction. Several of my men will escort you. One's going to go ahead to let them know you're coming. Refugees are accepted and and they will help you. And everyone gives thanks. like, Oh, thank goodness, so much so. And again, all of them look at Darsh, and like, thank you, my lord, thank you, sir, thank you, sir, bless you, sir, thank you, sir. Darsh is like, okay, sure. And dar they're they're long, they continue on. Again, they've been traveling for a bit of the day, it's early to mid-afternoon. They travel several hours, it's now getting later in the afternoon, and they arrive at what is the encampment. Now, the encampment is a bunch of buildings, probably crudely made, Wooden cabins, maybe some tents, some rough buildings and such that are made. There's woods and stuff in here, although uh, you can see several gardens and things. Although the foods that are growing are odd, if you will. They don't seem to be growing well. Definitely they need a Kelvin. If Kelvin the Cleric was here, these people would benefit from him horrendously. But the you can see that the plants, what potato plants, base things that can grow in rugged weather and rugged lands, or what are growing and stuff. Really can't write yet, sir, but I will chat about it a little bit later. And they're taken in, and, and again everybody mind boggled by this group of people. And as they arrive, and the the you know as they're arriving, of course someone had run ahead to tell them. They traveled several hours to get here. So they are good ways. They could see that they're in a large valley encircled by mountains. From what they could see, the only relative opening spot was there. But of course, several hours in every direction of these mountains, there could be other places like that that are barricaded. But Panama is the name of this place. And, uh, they walk inside and they're kind of hanging out. And, uh, I'm going to do something here in a minute that I normally don't try to do, and I hope it doesn't sound horrible, and if it does, please tell me and I'll stop. In a minute. But They're taken inside, and they can see that there's people who are blacksmithing and stuff. There's people who are doing stuff. They can see there's people making spears. There's people making very base weapons, more wooden spike things like you saw at the barricades. Uh, Things that clearly are being taken to defend different areas. Maybe very much so, Turtle. Um but they're taken in now someone of relative rank seems to come up someone a bit of a leader clearly not a person in charge but they're like and of course they come up and again he knees for just a minute and then stands back up and he's like uh my lord and my ladies and everyone he goes we cannot tell you how blessed we are by your presence the light itself is showing us a sign today we never thought we would see and we cannot tell you how important it is that you've come to be here Please, please, come with me. And he leads them into what is the, probably the largest and best built building here. Which in itself is not huge. And they're taken into a room. Uh, it's a relatively nice room. It's not real cluttered. Chairs and stuff seem to be very handmade. Nothing fancy. Um, <laughs> nothing that would hold Darsh, So he just kind of leans up against the wall a little bit. And they're in there and the person's like we heard you were coming, so on and so forth. Um, I've, I've sent word to uh, there will be people here to see you very, very soon. But again, thank you so much for coming. Uh, the other people that they were with were kind of taken off and given places and food and, and given places to live because uh, they're refugees and such. But our party, our group, the special people, were what taken into this room. And they're hanging out there for a little while. They're asking, "You want food? You need drink? Anything at all?" We don't have much, but whatever we have is yours. And they're like, "No, we're, we're good for now. Thank you." In the back of their mind, like, "We got that barrel of pickled fish, man. Don't you worry about it." I'm like, "We're good." As they're standing there, or as they're hanging out there, eventually they hear a conversation in the next room. And the, the room, the, it's, it gets loud, not in anger, but it seems like they're discussing, maybe debating something. There's a male voice and a female voice. And then the door opens, and the male walks through. Although he's still talking to whoever's in the other room. His head's kind of turned in that direction. You know, he's chatting himself. But as he walks out, you see that it's a dwarf. An older dwarf, but he's dressed in very fine plate mail, though maybe a little dingy. Tabard hanging over him of white and gold. Colors, not real gold. Strapped to his back is a large two-handed hammer. And all of you know a paladin when you see one. The dwarf walks in and he's talking. and And he turns and he stops. And he sees everybody in this room. And even though everyone's mind-boggled on Darsh, he's staring at Artemis. And all he says, "My, my, my lady." And he turns and he says, "Lass, get in here quickly." And a woman walks in, also in heavy armor, though not quite as detailed as his, no tabard and such, although she is much taller, her long, dark purple hair reaching to the middle of her back. Clearly an elven, but with a slightly bluish tinge to her skin, steps in. Also, and she goes, what is it, Fenton? And she steps in and she stops too. But when she says, what is it, Fenton? Dandy eyes open wide in shock and the others are shocked what they see but they're shocked more at Dandy's reaction because if they didn't know better if she hadn't been a kender they would think that the look in her eyes is fear and the elven woman steps in she goes well now this is quite a surprise Fenton the paladin dwarf steps up and introduces himself as Fenton Battlesmith, Dwarven Paladin of the Light. My lass, it's been so long. I'm so glad to have you here. I never thought I'd see one of your kind again. He turns to the elven woman and says, See, the gods have not abandoned us. They're still there. The woman looks doubtful, nods at him, and turns and says, It is truly a blessing that the light has brought you to us. My friend Fenton, or my ally Fenton here, has hoped and prayed for a sign from the light for a long time. And I think you may be it. My name is Menandra Riversbreath, and I welcome you to Panama. And that's where we're going to stop for today. <sighs> that's the point I wanted to get to. That's the point that I cut it off when we were playing many years ago as well. That's the exact spot that I stopped. My name is Menandra Riversbreath. And I welcome you to Panamore. Panama. I was really excited about that cliffhanger. Ah, Teresa. Does my heart good when I see you frustrated at my cliffhanger? Flashes back to all the times that you were happy at my death. (laughs) This is my vengeance. And I know you won't have me arrested for this because you wouldn't get more story. (laughs) So hopefully that'll give you guys something a little bit to think about. Before next week, because next week is week three, so after next week we'll be jump. We'll have a a, after three weeks of Merge Worlds. The fourth week is um, the members stream. Now, with the new schedule coming out and testing things and such here in the next couple weeks, it is possible that I may move the members stream, the monthly members stream, to a different day of the week. And if people are interested. I may try to start doing Merged Worlds every week. So instead of taking a week off for Merged Worlds, I would do it every week, and I would just once a month hold the member stream on a different night. That's going to be, of course... If that's something that people are interested in, if more Merge Worlds is what... I mean, I understand a lot of you would like that, but at the same time, uh, some people might like that week off to catch up on stuff that they haven't seen and such. Uh, So that's something I'm going to be throwing out to the community, get some feedback and see what you guys like. But I think that I'd like to try to move it where Merge Worlds is every week. You know, many of you will know we used to do this every other week. Then I moved to three out of four weeks. Um, I'd always hoped to eventually get to a schedule where I could do it every week, and I'd like to try. Um... So that's something I'll be talking about. Um, If you would like to be a part of that conversation and you aren't already, you should join our Discord channel. If you go to my website, OnlyDraven.com, the top of the homepage, you're going to find a link that'll take you directly into our Discord channels. Welcome to everyone. You'll find a lot of other good stuff there, like the uh, ODG store. You can find cool merged worlds and OnlyDraven Gaming merchandise. That's something you're interested in. You'll find links to all my social medias. Highly recommend checking those out. Because in March, I'm going to be running a social media contest with some pretty cool prizes. And the more of my social medias you follow, the more opportunities you will have to win. I'm going to run a social media contest for the month of March. I know one of the prizes is going to be a $50 Steam gift card. But I'm going to have more stuff as well. This is going to be a big contest. I'm going to start trying to do this maybe every few months. Uh, I, want to, I want to have a big of Or so, where we we have a lot of prizes. So, keep an eye out for that. Um... If you liked the stream today and you haven't already, please be sure to click like. Most importantly, remember to hit subscribe and smack the hell out of that little bell symbol so you can get notifications when we have videos and streams and tutorials and all of that stuff. Uh, If you'd like to see more Merged Worlds information, links to it are available on the website as well. It's also available as an audio podcast on Spotify and iTunes. Just search the word Merged Worlds. If you use either of those, I would be forever in your debt if you wouldn't mind going there and just clicking like or subscribe or follow, whatever it is on the one you use. Um, the more people that follow those things, the more that the Spotify and iTunes put it in front of other people's eyes. So I'm, I'm definitely trying to grow the fun Even if you watch the videos, don't listen to it, I'd love it if you'd give it a follow. I'm not asking you to leave reviews and such, if, especially if you've never seen it. I'm not asking you to lie or nothing, but if you wouldn't mind giving it a follow or sub, I'd greatly appreciate it. Uh, Chase says, awesome story. So glad I stayed, even though it's 4 a.m. here in the UK. Oh, four. oh, Chase, we'd love to have you back. Turtles on Twitter now. Excellent. I look forward to that as well. Turtles on the Discord. <laughs> but yes, um, click like. Be sure to subscribe. Go to the website. Check out the stuff there. On the website, you'll find pictures of different actors and actresses, celebrities that a lot of times I use as inspiration for these NPCs and characters. Um, So if you'd like to see my inspiration for those, you can find those on the website as well. You'll also find, if you go to the Merged Worlds Instagram account, I uh, go online and I designed minis for everybody. I'll give you an example. Here is King Darkmore again. I do these on Hero Forge, and I post one just about every day on the Merged Worlds Instagram. So to get an idea about different characters and what they look like, uh, that's another great resource for a lot of the characters that aren't even on the website yet. Um, this month right now I'm doing all of the gods of Merged Worlds. Uh, all the good and neutral up and I'm currently working on the evil gods, but I post other D&D stuff too. Uh, links to videos, tutorials, streams like this. Uh, Merge Worlds art that I get. So uh, definitely give all that a check out. Again, trying to build the social media following. Going to be a cool contest with some cool prizes. So hopefully uh, you will be participating in those. But thank you so much for coming by and giving me the opportunity to tell my story. Um, oh, well. <laughs> Mole just gave us a follow. <laughs> thank you very much on Twitch. <laughs> um, but yes, thank you very much. Uh, for hanging out with me and give me a chance to tell this story. It's an important part of my life. I've been running this campaign for close to 30 years at this point, um, and it's a pleasure to be able to get to share it with more people. Um, extra special thank you, as always, to my members, uh, you folks uh, who are part of our membership program. Uh, and your support of the channel continuously is uh, channel continuously is, is, is what's allowing me to take this step to be able to provide more content, more stream, and to step back from my regular job. So thank you so much for that. Uh, if you're interested in finding out a, about a, a membership for the channel, click the Join button on my YouTube channel. It's the Draven's Dragons membership. It's like a Twitch sub except cheaper. It's only $2.99 a month. You get a whole bunch of stuff like members-only streams, uh, Minecraft server access for members-only, and a bunch of other cool perks. Um, as well as to those folks who've been donating donating We had a donation today. Thank you all again for your support of the channel. I do my best to put all of that back into the channel so we can make even better and more stuff. And of course, as always, an extra special thank you to my moderators for all of the hard work they do and the support they give me on a regular basis. You folks are loved and appreciated and I cannot tell you how much help you are. But I'm going to call that for a day. I hope you all had a good time with me in Merge Worlds. And I hope I will see you again very soon. Tomorrow night's stream will be at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be back into some Minecraft Stone Block 2. So, you all have yourselves a wonderful evening, and hopefully, I will see you again very soon. You guys, have yourselves a great day.